tip today in association with Slattery's of Pecan, your main Peugeot dealer for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Morning, welcome along to Tip Today, 1800-938-007. That's our free phone number. Won't cost you to make a call. Emma is looking after the programme this morning. Coming up on the show, and to leader Padder Tobin on excess debts in the state. I'll also be speaking to the Minister for Enterprise, Trade and Employment, Simon Coveney, just after 10 o'clock this morning. Patrick Kielty's first outing as Late Late Show host. We'll hear from some of our listeners on that. We have Global Politics with Thomas Conway. We have Travel Tales with Fergal O'Keefe. So all of that and much, much more on the way. You can text and WhatsApp 083 311 You can email tip today at tipfm.com. Let's have a look at what's making headlines in your newspapers today. The Irish Independent, they're leading with the uh, headline, Budget will offer families more help to buy second-hand homes and the government's shared equity scheme for first-time buyers could be extended to second-hand homes in next month's budget with uh, Housing Minister Dara O'Brien uh, open to such a move. We hear um, the Irish Examiner and uh, dominated by a photograph of Russell Brand leaving the Troubadour Wembley Park Theatre in London after performing a comedy set. And uh, he faces claims, as you know at this point, from four women about his sexual uh, behaviour at the height of his fame. And, of course, he has denied the allegations, but coverage right across the newspapers today of that. Also on The Examiner, seriously ill children are being put at risk as some hospital consultants are slow to refer them to the most appropriate health care. And that's according to the Tonishti. He said that he has been forced to intervene in a number of cases to ensure that sick children are transferred to criminal hospital and other centres of excellence for treatment. Now, I find that rather amazing because I spoke to the uh, Tonishti on the programme last week and he took me to task for being negative about the health service. So there you go. The Irish Daily Mail. And uh, their lead story, RTE's controversial €240,000 tender process for photographers to take pictures on the set of the Soap Fair City was suspended yesterday. And the Director General, Kevin Backhurst, said that the uh, process would be paused following his decision to halt discretionary spending. Finally, a look at the Irish Times and probably the best photograph on the newspapers today, the uh, deaths of 1,100 Spanish soldiers and sailor, sailors 435 years ago were commemorated on a beach in County Sligo and senior officers of the Spanish Navy laid a wreath in memory of the Spanish Armada dead of 1588. Now the event part of an Armada Remembrance Weekend but this particular photograph by a guy called Mike Guckian and it's an aerial shot of the beach and I think it's a wonderful uh, award winning photograph as far as I'm concerned. Also we're reading on the Irish Times today that the European Union is working on a new 20 billion euro package of military support for Ukraine to run over five years, which has been uh, uh, raised informally in recent weeks with the Irish government and uh, others. And uh, Michal Martin in New York saying that he would be announcing a further €23 million 
in government aid to Ukraine at the United Nations in the coming days. So that's a quick peek at what's making headlines in your newspapers today. If you want to make comments on any of that, we would love to hear from you. 083-311-3311. Now, AN2 leader Padre Tobin has called on the Health Minister to urgently convene an independent inquiry into the causes of excess deaths in the state. Mr Tobin uh, joins me now. Good morning to you, Padre. Good morning. Thank you so much for your time uh, this morning. What kind of figures uh, has been uh, have been revealed to you? Yeah, so this is, is quite a shocking situation that over the last 18 months there has been significantly a high excess deaths. And what excess deaths mean is that the, the number of deaths that happen in a given month are higher than the average and that you would expect. So there's, there's an average of taking over five years up until uh, 2019 and um, the figures have been incredibly high for the last 18 months. So, for example, in June, uh, 13.7% extra deaths happened than you would expect uh, on on the basis of the average. And for the last 12 months, each of the months has been higher uh, than the average. Uh, Indeed, you know, we had last July 16.4%, last uh, April 12 months 19.2%. You know, December uh, figures... 25.7% 25.7% uh, higher. So, the, you know, we're, we're talking about really high numbers. And indeed, the, the Irish Examiner did a, a, a study on this back in uh, December 2022 to January 2023. And they saw that the, ex, the excess deaths in that month, in that, in that period, was actually higher than the same period the previous year, even though the previous year we were in the grip of the worst of the COVID pandemic. So, you know, Rightly, obviously, the health system was very uh, focused and there was an emergency response in in terms of COVID. Yes, there's crickets from the health system and the government in terms of the number of people who are dying uh, currently above the average. And, you know, also the major problem I have with this is the real lack of information because when I put parliamentary questions into the Minister of Health on this, the Minister pretty much um, admits that they're not really collecting the information, that the information is uh, very haphazard and they don't have proper systems for collecting the information about the number of people who are dying. You know, there's a lot of information coming from uh, city morgues, from undertakers, even from parish priests, uh, which are saying that uh, the number of of funerals that are are, are much higher uh, at the moment and younger people passing away as well. So... You know, this is an issue of major concern. It should be a national, a national scandal. It should be something that the whole system is focused upon. And yet the government are letting it just pass uh, underneath the radar with, with very little attention uh, to it yeah. uh, whatsoever. You, you say it should be top of the health minister's priority list, but have you had an indication, is it even on his priority list? <laughs> No, there's no information that it's on the, 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 the minister's list. I've put in a number of parliamentary questions on this. I've raised it in the dolls. And each time, you know, to, to give a summary of the minister's response is there's nothing really to see here. Um, now, I know for a fact that during COVID, uh, the government closed cancer services. They closed heart disease services, stroke services, mental health uh, issues. You know, all of those systems in the health service were closed. And I also know that uh, a large number of professional medics were indicating that if the government didn't reopen these services, the danger would be that there would be a tidal wave of people with 
far more advanced cases. So, for for example, people who had cancers and yeah. um, who didn't go to hospital, didn't get them checked. You know, uh, those cases were maybe two and and three and four and five uh, months and, uh, beyond when they got the treatment. And as a result, those treatments didn't happen. And those people have more advanced cancers. And now they're dealing with those uh, uh, now uh, currently in the system. And I suppose I had skin in the game myself because I got skin cancer uh, during this period of COVID as well. I didn't go probably. I delayed my uh, doctor appointment by about five months because my understanding was, you know, that the, the doctors were hammered, that they couldn't deal with this type of stuff. I finally went and thankfully I got treatments and I had a big chunk of skin removed and I'm all right now. But I know that a lot of other people weren't in the same boat. And I also know that the doctors were telling me that their waiting lists had jumped from maybe a two-year waiting list to be seen to maybe a six-year waiting list because the restrictions were slowing the number of people who could actually go and see those doctors. And the same is the case for, for heart disease, stroke and mental health. I also know from talking to, to people working within the child um, care for vulnerable children that the number of children being referred to TUSLEP has jumped massively uh, over the last couple of years, where there's now 83,000 children on an annual basis being referred to TUSLEP. And, you know, that's an incredible figure. It's, it's 30,000 more than actually set the leave insert uh, last year. But the reason that's happening, I'm told, from people working within that sector is because many of these children's experiences deteriorated significantly uh, during the whole the whole. COVID crisis. So all we're looking for is the government, the health minister, to really see what's going on, to put the necessary investment in place in the health service so we can actually deal with the backlog of people who are coming through the system. And then secondly, to hold an investigation into what happened so that we, we understand as a people, you know, that there are, there are significant consequences for closing down the, the state for so long. Most of the European countries have actually held investigations into this they're learning in real time you know mm. what the right thing and the wrong thing is to do in these scenarios but this government is not doing that and i think the reason they're not doing that is because an investigation won't put them in a good light it'll be politically damaging to them potentially um, and that's the reason why they're dragging their heels on it and, and that's dangerous because yeah. that means those parties are putting their political you know, objectives higher than the needs of the people. Other people, of course, are reading even more sinister reasons into the kind of data that you're talking to me about. For instance, I was, I was speaking to a, a lady who was fundraising for North Tipperary Hospice last week, and she was telling me about, again, it's anecdotal, but it was her own experience, that more and more young people uh, developing cancer and more unusual cancers, for example. Um, what, what are your thoughts around those sort of comments? Yeah, I... I, I, first of all, I'm, all, I'm very, very cautious to, um, to come down one side or the other in relation to those comments. I have seen that there, is a, there does seem to be a larger number of young people uh, losing their lives at the moment, and you know, especially with heart conditions as well. But what I would say is we don't need to speculate. We can actually have an investigation. We can actually get you know, a proper uh, scientific understanding of what's happening if the government actually puts the right people into place to investigate this. My worry is that the lack of government action on an investigation is actually creating a space where suspicion, you know, starts to breed. And, you know, the government is creating that situation where people are putting maybe two and two together and getting five, while in actual fact, the government should be immediately putting in place 
in legislation measures to investigate why we have a significant level of excess deaths happening within the state, how they dealt with COVID, and then put the investment into place so those people who are falling ill now get the proper treatment that they need. And because the Department of Health doesn't produce estimates of excess mortality, where, where did you get your data? Yeah, so the government basically referred me to Eurostat. Um, so Eurostat is obviously it's a European organisation and they collect data from different um, locations, but mostly from RIP.ie in Ireland. Mm. So that's the, the, the website in which most deaths are registered uh, as such. And to be honest, most statisticians will admit that actually that is a, a very good uh, repository of that information. But it's not the best and it's not fully scientific and it's not a state collection of information. So really the government you know, should be actually getting it acted together. If RIP that IE can do it for free. Why in the name of God can't the government do it, you know, in terms of the number of deaths? For, for every death has to be registered. And, and just finally, and I know you're in a hurry this morning, so I'm, I'm just uh, thinking of that, but uh, it, there appears to be excess deaths internationally, Padre. So, I mean, has anybody else, uh, any other country investigated this properly? <laughs> Yeah, there are, inter- there are excess deaths internationally, but there's different levels. And I will say that the Irish figure is way beyond what the European average is. Oh, is, is it? Oh, right. It is way beyond what the European average is. Ireland is one of the worst countries for excess deaths, according to Eurostat, and, uh, currently. And yes, other countries have investigated it. So what I'm saying is, like, the likes of Britain and Sweden, you know, half a dozen other countries have already instigated proper investigations into how it dealt with COVID and the and the outcome of that. So, you know, Ireland is a laggard. The Irish government is a laggard in terms of this, a laggard in terms of putting the investment in to help people who are very sick at the moment and also in shedding light on um, why these are happening uh, in our country at the moment. All right, we appreciate your time this morning, Padder. Thank you and good morning to you. That is uh, Ian to leader Padder Tobin speaking to us uh, this morning, uh, calling for an urgent, uh, independent, uh, independent inquiry into the cause of excess deaths here in uh, the state. 1800-938-007. The text and WhatsApp is only 3311 Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Now, last Friday night, uh, stand-up comic and broadcaster Patrick Kilty has his uh, first outing as host of The Late Late Show. Now, I was following the commentary online. It was sort of mixed. Uh, largely, he was well-received. But we asked some of our listeners to watch the programme for us and give us their thoughts. And Donald joins me now. Donald, good morning to you. Good morning, Fran, and good morning to your listeners. And thanks for your time this morning, and thank you for watching the programme for us, Donald. What did you make of it? Well, it was a new approach, for sure. A little bit like going back to the time of Gay Bourne. Um, I felt Mr. Keelty came across as being genuine and sincere, all right. And a lot of that, I thought he was, he was a little bit nervous. Of course, I mean, this was his first outing uh, on a, a national uh, television show, um, primetime slot. So I suppose he probably would be entitled to be a bit nervous. Um, the... The show itself, like, um, like he, he presented very well. Um, 
a bit of humour was injected into it at the expense of RT, of course, mm. as you could probably expect that. I think even Kevin Backhurst was quoted yesterday as saying that oh, well, the jokes were great. <laughs> yeah, he thought it was a bit, of, a bit of fun, even though some of the jokes pointing at him. But anyway, yeah. Well, I suppose in, in, when you get that level of a job, like you, you probably need a sense of humour, otherwise you probably won't survive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But... Um, the guest list, though, was a little bit lacklustre because uh, we were promised, shall we say, uh, more, more star-like guests and all this to sort of carry on uh, at, at the outset. Mm. Now, in fairness, he did get a good bit of banter out of Mary McAleese, the former president. Yes. And yeah. there was a good bit of um, toing and froing there. And, you know, it, 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 it's probably off to a good start, but we'll have to see how it develops. Yeah, some of the critique about it was that, again, it was an RTE person uh, interviewing other RTE uh, people and uh, himself and Tommy Tiernan, I suppose, and the comment from Tommy to say that, well, you're doing the Friday night gig and I'm doing the Saturday night gig. It was all a little bit incestuous, I suppose. Well, you see, that's the the, the problem that they've had with, under the auspices of Ryan Tuberty previously. The guest list was a bit, well... Mm. Um, a bit mundane, to be honest. And yes. while his presentation is better than Tubbery, I think, in the sense that uh, Tubbs would always be perching on the edge of the seat, a bit like uh, a swallow waiting to swoop on an unsuspecting <laughs> insect. Because uh, that, that used to irritate the life out of me. Did it? Yeah. Oh, goodness me. It drove me mad. Like, you would think he'd sit back in the seat and relax. Because that sort of approach would, would put the guest on, on edge, I would imagine. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing would be to make sure your guests are relaxed. Do you know, I, I never thought of that, Donald, but now that you say it to me, I'm just remembering his posture, and yeah, yeah, he was sort of on the then, edge of the seat. Of course, he? you can throw in the, the wild gesticulations of Tuberty as well, like just like he was conducting the National <laughs> Symphony Orchestra. <laughs> like, it was all a bit, a bit fake now, to be honest, in that regard, but that didn't uh, come across to um, Patrick Keirty at all. He had a different approach altogether. Yeah. He was sitting behind the desk, like, you know, he was reasonably relaxed and reasonably confident and all the rest of it. But yeah. the guest list would probably still have to improve. Now, uh, there was one glimmer of hope there when somebody presented the envelope across the desk to him and he opened the envelope and Mariah Carey started mm. coming on in the background. <laughs> My goodness, is he going to interview Mariah Carey? <laughs> and then it turned out to be an ad for this high show. Oh. Yeah, and uh, I, I felt the same when he was introducing the musical act, uh, Chasing Abbey, I think was the name. But I, I thought he was going to introduce the Wolf Tones, and that would that would have been oh, extremely no, no, subversive, no, wouldn't no, it? Yeah. Don't go there now. That would have been a very political rabbit hole. <laughs> but I, I sort of thought that that's what he was leading up to, but uh, no, it, it wasn't. What, well, did, what did you think of that band, by the way, with their, their techno version of an Irish song? Did you... It was entertaining, all right, for yeah. sure. Like, it's something different. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, uh, let's see what else comes along. Hopefully, yeah. other maybe new acts might come along the way and some of the older ones that are more established. And when, I mean, when you that, said that it harked back to the days of Gay Byrne, were you talking about the panel remaining on for a part of the show and, and maybe getting involved in the discussions? Is that is that what you meant by that, Donald? Yes, yes. yes. Yeah. And also the little bit of humour, like, you know, interspersed throughout it. Because mm. uh, 
gay always did things a little bit tongue in cheek, like mm. you know. Mm. And he had his own particular style, and he, and he was extremely good at it. Like he was a taskmaster. There's no question about it. Yeah. Oh um, no, no, the, no the, doubt about it whatsoever. As far the as the show has never been the same since he left. Yeah. Yeah. Un- unfortunately, but maybe now there's a glimmer of hope for the future. But of course, it all depends, I suppose, on the the budgetary situation that RTE finds itself in at the moment with the collapsing television license and all the rest of it. Well, isn't that really what it's about? Because, I mean, the comparison is to something like Graham Norton, who would have, you know, Hollywood guests on a weekly basis and big, big A-list stars and the like. We can never hope for that here, I suppose. Well, I think Gay Bourne was actually better at that in in his time. Yeah. Like, uh, he, he would always have somebody unusual or interesting yeah. say, from the world of theatre or cinema or whatever. Do you remember or, or P- music. Peter Sellers and Peter Eustonoff? And, Peter you know. I, I was just talking about that this morning. Peter Eustonoff. Like, oh, you know, he was he, amazing. He was he? Anything. Yeah, yeah. I loved him. I loved him. I just loved him. Yeah, he, he was a class act, like, you know. Yeah. Um, so, as far as you're concerned, sorry, you, you have a glimmer of hope from Friday night, have you, Donald? Well, well hopefully, yes. Like, I mean, things can only improve, Fred. Because yeah. uh, the way things were going, it was uh, on a downward trajectory, shall we say. Yeah. A bit like the television license. <laughs> Don't mention the television license. Yeah, that's that's going to be a huge issue going forward uh, as well, but I presume we'll be talking about that, that possibly later on where uh, Simon Coveney is concerned. Donald, great to talk to you, and thanks for watching that for us on Friday night. Thank you. You're quite welcome, Frank, Thank and you. thank you. Good morning to you. That's uh, Donald. Let's go to, to Helen now, who was watching on Friday night as well. Helen, good morning to you. Friend, how are you? I think you might have enjoyed Friday night, Helen. Did you? Oh yeah, I did. Yes, I was absolutely delighted with it. Um, I had stopped watching the Late Late Show about three or four weeks into Tubridge's tenure, and I couldn't stand what he was doing. So um, I was delighted to be asked to watch the Late Late Show on Friday night, and now it helps, I think, in a way that I like Patrick Keelty anyway. I think he's hilarious. Yes. Yeah. So he brought that humour, which was absolutely correct, with him to, certainly to his opening, which had to be kind of on the nail, really, mm. uh, because this was our introduction to Patrick on the yes. Late Late Show. I agree with you. If he got he that wrong, brilliant. he would have been lambasted. I mean, that opening was so yeah. important, wasn't it? I, it was. I was in stitches. And Were you? When he yeah. introduced the band, Grant Thornton and the Flip Flops, <laughs> Thornton, <laughs> whoa, and then about being waiting back there and feeling as nervous as, um, as what's his name, Joe Duffy being introduced at a Wolf Tony. <laughs> he really got in there, you yes, know. <laughs> yeah. So, so hopeful for the future then with it, Helen, are you? I think so, yes. Uh, yeah. Because he had Humour in there, which, as uh, Donald said, you know, Gabe Byrne used to used to uh, interject with some humorous parts along the way because you don't want to show that absolutely dark either. I watch for entertainment, and certainly I like to to hear serious topics. But and I've been reading across Facebook, and he's been lambasted for not being serious enough. Mm. Give the man time. His first show, his first talking, he can't have every subject covered in ninety minutes. It's the way that I would look at it. And as it stands, his discussion with Mary McAleese and when they were speaking about the Good Friday Agreement, and given the background of both Mary and Patrick, Patrick Keelty's father was murdered by the UFF, Mary McAleese's family, where um, they had also run in mm. with the Loyalists, yeah. serious yeah. where their lives were put in the line. Uh, 
they mm. really knew where they were coming from. And the other thing is that he was been criticised for having so many people from the six counties. The man had actually, I hate using this word, but an inclusive programme. He had people from the entire country. So you, and we you, weren't looking to... Yes. Yeah, you you saw United, that United as a good program. thing, obviously, then, that, that it was so inclusive, Helen, yeah. It was, it was inclusive. It was a united programme. Yes, absolutely. And the other thing I liked about him was uh, the few times I said that I had Rush Tuberty and even Pat Kenny, mm. they used to um, interrupt the people that they were interviewing. Mm. Mm. She just left them run on and they interacted with each other and it was just a joy to watch. It wasn't just like, I'm the boss, I'm sitting here, I'm running the show and you're just here to kind of... Um, showcase what I can do. Patrick was just wonderful. Yeah. A bit nervous, but his first outing. Do you, do you know something that I, I found? I, I was shocked because it's so rare that it happens, but James McLean, he spoke about the plight of Catholics in Northern Ireland, and it's so rare to hear that spoken of on RTE. I, I thought it was refreshing. You know, it really did. I thought so too. I, yeah. I In fact, I found I, the whole, I think the whole approach to what had what has happened, and to be quite honest, some of us know it's still happening in the parts of the, of the um, occupied six counties. Yeah. That it was great to hear. So uh, th- there were three voices there. Really, there was yeah. James who spoke out so well about it, and then Mary and um, Patrick. And Patrick, oh my gosh, I was nearly in tears when he was speaking about his family, knowing terrible journey they had and when his wife caught because all of that had to come up especially speaking about his father who subsequently ended up dying yeah his father murdered um yeah, murdered, it, it's, yeah. um so as far as you're concerned a new dawn helen um for for the late late show yes absolutely and i was reading that his daughter gay's daughter and gay's wife have given the nod of approval and have said that he seems to be veering towards what gay used to be doing but Patrick will obviously put his own stamp on us. Yes, Crona was very well, gracious indeed to him and wished him well on social media beforehand. Absolutely. And, uh, it was a lovely touch, yeah. And, you know, on the, the wolf tone end of things, mm. I was there thinking, yes, the wolf tones are going to be on. <laughs> and, yeah. and he wound us up twice. Weren't it at the beginning when he mentioned about Duffy and the wolf tone gig? I thought, oh, maybe they're going to be on. And then he wound us up a bit further. So the man is going to wind us up a bit. I think that's great. Right. But do you see that as a good? Day. That's a good thing, Helen. As far as you're concerned. Yes, yeah. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. The, the only thing I would say to if if God knows it would never happen, but if I was asked for advice about the Late Late Show, I would say instead of looking to international celebrities or indeed to the RTE canteen, there's amazing characters in this country, Helen. You know, yeah. we have them on the show all of the time. Like if they were interviewed, if there was. A weekly slant where they spoke to the so-called ordinary people of Ireland who happen to be extraordinary, um, I think it would be brilliant, wouldn't it? I think it would be, but I think that may already be covered by, like in the next few weeks, by, by, um, what's his name, Tommy Kiernan. Do you think? Yeah. Because that's what Tommy Kiernan, he brings somebody on and... About one, at least one of the guests in each of his shows mm. is somebody we've never heard of, but who's who's Irish and has done something absolutely amazing. Mm. But I suppose it's no harm too if he had one of his guests doing something amazing. Um, maybe 
even some Irish inventor or because mm. some do you remember years ago Gay Byrne had on a slot in his programme where he invited on people who had invented things. I remember and, that very well. It was super. And we had a man yeah. from Tran, well, living in Tamel, Joe Moroni, and he had this particular kind of padlock cover. Mm. He, the man was way ahead of his time. Right. So that's that's the yeah. kind of thing you'd like to see more of, I guess, then, Helen, isn't I it? I think so, yes. Showcasing um, Irish people and, you know, if there are even any bone setters still around, because do you remember Heffernan out there? I up remember by well, Killinall, right? of course, yes. Yeah. Well, there's still a member of the Heffernan family as a bone setter in, in that area. What, outside of Feathered, wasn't it? Outside of Feathered, between Feathered and Killinall. Yeah. They'd be absolutely fascinating people to have on it. Yeah. Yeah, and they're, they're the kind of ideas I think would, would add colour to the show. But, you know, as you say, maybe that's what they intend in the coming weeks and months. I would hope so. What I, what I don't want to see is what uh, ended up on both Kenny's and Tropical's programme. Loads of people coming in, and all they're doing is promoting a book. Now, I'm a reader, but yeah. for goodness sake, I was going to get a bit stronger. For goodness sake, yeah. like. The program being a promotion program, whereas last uh, Friday night was not a promotion as such at all. Yeah, and as far as you're concerned, what what about the music item? What 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 did you make of that? Oh my gosh, I really enjoyed them. After getting over the disappointment that it wasn't the world song, I first I thought. Second, I'm going to turn it off. You know, throw a little strap. You know, and then I was listening to them and I thought. But they have me bouncing up the ceiling. Okay, you know? right. So that, yeah, that worked like for you, them. yeah. Well, well, I was delighted to see my old friends, the two Johnnies, on it as well. It was great to <laughs> have, have a tipperary representation there for the first oh, night of the yes. late show, too. Yeah. yeah. And those guys are the guys who kept me relatively sane during all those flipping lockdowns. Did they? <laughs> I discovered them on YouTube, and I thought, they're yeah. as mad as a box of frogs, and I loved them. <laughs> You know, and the thing about it's not the first time that there have been Johnny's on the Late Late Show, you know. That's that, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that was so funny. And it brought me back to Gayborn and his sense of humour when he was talking about condoms and he was showing how to use, put one on and he said, pardon the expression, but <laughs> roll it there, Colette. <laughs> oh, you're bringing me back lovely memories now. That's, oh, my that's, God. That's do you, by sure. the way, do you know why they're called Johnny's? I don't know why they're called Johnny's. Now, why, why are they called Johnny's, Ellen? I'll tell you why. In the 17th century England, there were they, they had a form of condoms, and they were made by a pharmacist called John Miles. Right. And they called them Johnny Miles or Johnny's. I, do you know, every day is a school day, Helen. I, I didn't think I'd get information of that quality from you this morning, but... <laughs> oh, there you go. You never know what you get from me. My head does a lot of things. <laughs> Helen, and I love it. sometimes it goes into mad areas altogether. <laughs> well, Helen, if you have other views on The Late Late over the coming weeks and months, we'd love to hear from you on that as well. Is that OK, I will Helen? certainly get back to you on that. Thank you very oh. much, friend, and have a lovely day. Well, you too, Helen. You too. Bye-bye. Okay. Um, yeah, every day is a school day here in the programme, that's for sure. 1800 07. Um, okay, Fran, looking at the Late Late Show on Friday night, uh, gave the viewer uh, that was watching the programme that it was being produced, or oh, gave the impression that it was being produced by either UTV or BBC Ulster. Let's hear stories from ordinary people. There are many topics that affect them, and that's Pat in Ross Grey. Um, somebody else saying Ryan Tuberty had the same guests uh, just a few months ago. 
Yeah, do you know something that struck me uh, as well? Do you remember at the very top of the programme that he introduced um, Tommy Tiernan and Larita or whatever her name is, and Hector? It seemed to me Hector looked like he was sort of a rabbit caught in headlights. So he, he didn't really add to the conversation all that much. Anyway, uh, somebody is saying, Paddy, brilliant anyway. Who wants big American stars? We don't live in their world. Ordinary people from the audience with real-life stories Always more interesting, says Teresa. Yeah, and I'm glad you reminded me of that, Teresa, because I thought he was very comfortable, in fact, when he went down into the audience for that uh, segment. And uh, I thought he dealt with the phone call, uh, the live phone call, extremely well, too, in fairness to him. Um, okay, lots more coming in. Let me have a, a look through it and I will bring it to you. But can I just remind you that there's a coffee morning for South Tipperary, Tipperary Hospice at the Galti Inn in Care on Thursday next between 10am and 12 noon. And your attendance there would be much appreciated. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecone, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecone, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Yeah, Nancy is in Kilcormack and she didn't think too much of it at all. She thought Mary McAleese should have been interviewed on her own. She said, I'll watch it one more time, but five out of ten from me. Somebody else saying the Late Late Show, just more of the same with a small bit of humour. Tommy Tiernan, another RTE employee where that is uh, concerned. And um, finally for now, uh, a listener says if the Late Late Show fails to interview A-listers from around the world, it will not be successful. That's why the revival of failure in Thurles failed. They had no world class acts. Well, there you go. That's an opinion from another listener on 083 311 Geraldine is with me. Good morning to you, Geraldine. Good morning, Fran. How are you? I'm very well indeed. You had a look for us on Friday night, Geraldine. What did you I think? I did. Well, now, here we go. I thought I was at a Patrick Kilty comedy show in the beginning. Mm-hmm. I felt he was uh, back in his old stand-up comedy uh, days. And I actually thought, oh, good luck. I've had enough of you. So I switched over and I checked whatever else was on. I think it was a match. And then I said, I'd rather go back again because I would be a big Late Late Show fan. Mm. I went back then and I thought, oh, here we go. First of all, I felt he was like a school teacher at a desk. Now, I know it was difficult. First show, all of that. But I felt the set, the desk he was sitting behind should have been more uh, to the side. Rather, I thought Mary McAleese looks very awkward. She kind of was turning her head to talk to him. He was. He should have been more in front of them. Mm. Yeah, some of the seating looked a bit awkward. It, all it right. looked awkward. Yeah, it and is. I'd say yeah. they'll, they'll have to address this. You you were a Ryan Tuberty fan, though, Geraldine, oh, weren't big you? Time. Big time. Big yeah. time, yeah. And I was at the Late Late Show um, um, not long ago, uh, last year. Yeah. But I did find he had more life in him. Now, again... Patrick, it's first show, not easy, and it's filling big shoes in the past. Mm. Well, but, it, it, um, it is, I but it, I wonder about life. Yeah, I wonder about that nervousness that people are talking about. I mean, the guy's—he's being paid more than quarter of a million, I think, for for thirty and, shows. You know. Um, yeah, and also, um, Fran, like he's used to 
doing shows. Yeah, for like sure. He started off in the comedy zone mm-hmm. and he was out there in front of everybody. Yeah. So I, I, I can understand um, to a certain extent a little bit of nervousness because he's got shoes to fill. But I don't know why. I, I wasn't impressed now. And this repetitive um, interviewing of people that we see on a daily basis. Mm. I mean, the, I love the two Johnnies. Yeah. And they're local to me. And they're fantastic. But again, I felt it was a rushed interview with them. And there wasn't much, um, what could I say, crack or they weren't really allowed to be the two Johnnies. Mm. I don't know if that makes sense. Mm. And I thought Tommy Tiernan, who I love, was sitting in awe at one stage. Yeah, that first item with uh, Tommy and uh, Larissa Blewett and Mm. and Hector, Mm. uh, if it was maybe Tommy on his own, if he had to have somebody from RG, I'd say that might have been better. Yeah, and Hector is very good as well. But I felt, like you said, the three together, no. Yeah, it just just didn't seem to work. And then it no. became a big conversation about Larita's husband, uh, the, the, did, the, yeah. the football yeah. pundit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it was... I don't really know what it was about, but I did... I like Mary McAleese, and she's an amazing woman, and mm. she, you know, she put her stamp on a lot of things, and she's very profound thinking, and that's wonderful. But I felt uh, she was kind of looking over her shoulder at him, Mm. And then all this banter that went on, um, that's lovely, but I don't know. I don't know. Look, time will tell. Yes, and the James McLean uh, interview at the end, uh, I mean, Mm. what? A bit. um, It was sad. It was real. Yeah. But I think think being the first show, it should have been finished on a lighter more airy note. Ah, good point. Good point. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. You know, like, I've done this stint now. Let's have a bit of crack and here we go. No, it was sad. No, it was very true. It was real life, but that's my thinking, but that somebody has to move that desk. Yeah, and I... I thought I was back in Skull Creek 3 again. Well, if they don't spot that that needs to be looked at now they're not at the races at all because lots no, of people no. were making that point about how yeah. awkward it, it looked you'll, you'll watch it again though Geraldine I will I'll, I'll check in on number two and see how I go right. I, I, I tuned out completely when Pat Kenny did it because again he didn't have that oomph for me yes yeah, a very bright fellow of course and you know yes, really but well I informed found it, and, it was yeah. too on the same level. Did you ever have a conversation with somebody and there's no life in them and it's continuously and then you've had enough and you just want to say good luck? Right, right. The same dynamic all the time. It doesn't, yeah, 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 yeah. it doesn't change. Yeah, yeah. And Ryan is, was full of life. So was Gay. Gay got up and hopped about and he did, went yeah. and he, yeah. he, you know, he went to the audience. Ryan Turbidy does the same, did the same thing. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Time will tell. All right, Geraldine. Well, thank you for having a look for us and uh, look after yourself, Geraldine. Thank and you. And you too, Fran. You. And bye, have a lovely bye, day. Bye, thank you. You too. Bye-bye Thanks, now. Geraldine. Thank bye. you and bye-bye to you. Now, let's go to, uh, let's go to Patrick, I think, is with me now. Patrick, good morning to you. Good morning, Fran. How are and, you? Uh, good to talk to you today. I was following some of your, your uh, social media 
um, output over the weekend. I don't think you were impressed, Patrick. I was not impressed at all. Um, I partly guess I would not be impressed, Fran, because number one, I don't like stand-up comedy. I find Patrick Patrick Hilty's sense and style of comedy offensive, as I do with Tommy Turnin. But that's just my personal opinion. And I know Helen, your previous speaker, has disagreed with me on this. Mm. I agree with a lot of what the last lady was just saying to you there, Geraldine. Um, I wasn't comfortable with it. For me, RTE have to stride an iconic show. That would be like you retiring from tip today, tomorrow, and putting in somebody um, with no disrespect to our Emma to host the show. It Mm -hmm. would not be the same for me. And I'm only speaking for myself personally. I know people would disagree with me, and I'd probably get assaulted, as I did after my last interview with you, verbally. But no, Patrick Healy has no place on that show. It's lost its tradition. It's lost the iconic um, feel to it. And again, like Jordan said, I really think the desk has to go. Yeah, the the desk. Well, certainly the 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 chairs for the guests. I thought just didn't sort of weren't positioned properly, and they they looked awkward where it was concerned. What about the opening thing, which has become that notion of a a monologue at the start of a talk show? That's a very American, as I'm sure you're aware, Patrick. Did that yeah. even work for you? No, um, it didn't. Because you know why it didn't work for me? It why? was RTE propaganda. RTE scripted that for a comedian to take the piss out of RTE because of everything that's happened with Ryan Tuberty and all the scandals that are still going on and will continue to go on for such a long time. It's not over yet. Mm. Only on your own news bulletin this morning I heard that the um, photographer job was put on hold yes. 60,000 for so many shoots because it's outrageous money. And to be practical and reality and realistic about it, RTE threw Ryan Tuberty under the bus. Mm. Yeah. They threw him under the bus. Actually, it's, it's strange that you say that because it was it was one of the things I felt uncomfortable about on Friday night was poking a lot of fun at Tuberty because I know people now will shout about, oh, look at the money he was making and all of that. I actually feel sorry for Tuberty. You know? I feel sorry for Tuberty, and I like Ryan Tuberty. I yeah. didn't at the beginning of his time with um, with the Late Late Show, but like anything, I would give somebody a shot when they're new to the show because he did fill big booths with Kenny and Gabo, and that's good. And I think he done an exceptional job. And the one thing I will pay a respect to Ryan Tuberty for was when he did the Late Late Show in a studio with no audience the whole way through every lockdown. Mm. That man deserved an offer. Mm. Now, you know you he, know that he gets a lot of criticism for that because it looked like he was sort of pushing the, the party line and the government line all the time and, you know, how they kept insisting on the masks way ahead but of... But that wasn't Ryan Tuberty pushing that. That was RTE pushing that. Yeah. RTE is a propaganda station. They push every agenda that the government wants and then they go to the government for a 50 million bailout Mm. and they will get it. They will get it. 
Now, I'm sure they would disagree disagree profoundly with you at the notion of them being a mouthpiece for the government because they push the theory all the time, Patrick, as you are well aware, that they are the public service broadcaster, you know? There's a public service broadcaster in name. Mm. There's a public service broadcaster controlled by the government. Mm. We get no true news from RTE. You'd be better off listening to the 9, 10, 1 and 2 and 6 or 5 or 5 news on tip of them because you're getting real news. So you're, you're not a fan of uh, RT. Can you see anything in the future of um, of Mr. Keelty doing the show? Do you think, do you, did you see anything that might lead you to believe that things would improve then and things would... Not on Friday night okay. show. Um, now I switched it off uh, um, after the second advert and then I had discussions with some friends. One in particular agreed wholeheartedly with me. My friend Helen, who you had on this morning, didn't mm. agree with me. Mm. So we decided we'd agree to disagree. Yes. Um, so I watched it back then on Saturday in segments. Um, and I there was nothing inspirational in it for me, to be honest. Um, now, what I will do is I will dip in and out with for the next coming weeks. Now, who's to say I could be talking to you in four weeks' time and say I think Patrick Healy is brilliant? Mm. But what I want to see is, like, the interview with Mary McAleese was mm. so uncomfortable. It was so uncomfortable. Why Why did you think that was uncomfortable, Patrick? She just didn't, she didn't look comfortable because of the set. Oh, oh, right, okay, just physically, yeah, yeah. Physically, she looked so uncomfortable mm. and... You know, they, earlier on you had that gentleman Donald on and mm. he was talking about Tubbert sitting on the edge of the seat. Yes. And, they, you know, he was like waiting, like waiting, a sparrow waiting to grab a worm. Mm. That is not true because what KLT was, was if I'm having a deep and meaningful conversation with somebody and I'm in my living room, I perch myself to the edge of my seat because I want to get closer to the conversation so I can digest the conversation. Oh, that's interesting. So your posture would reflect your interest in the person that yes, you're, you're, you're talking and listening to. I've been trained by an American company in body language. Okay. So I monitor and I observe these things. And when, like, if you go back to the one interview and I want to see KLT match this, this would be the test for me. Mm. The interview that Tuberty did with the late Vicky Thielen. Yes. That was such a powerful, emotional, tender, beautiful interview. And if you go back on a footage of that, he did the same. He perched and he tilted his back and perched. Right, and he gave her attention. And uh, do you, I mean, are you saying that you think that uh, Patrick Kilty might be capable of something like that? Then? I don't think he would be capable of something like that. And number number one, the most important thing here is RTE needs to change that set. Because when it came on first, I didn't like the opening intro, the way it was changed. The previous um, intros, the L was more prominent, mm. which we all grew up with. I and mean, it's tradition. Well, they say it's been tradition in my house since I was knee-high to a grasshopper. Mm. But the desk has to go bring back the seating, the proper seating. What, do you know what it, it reminded me of? It reminded me of the Jerry Springer set. 
Yes, okay. And maybe that's what they're attempting for, again, is that sort of a American Americanization. You know, yeah. Americanization. I'm sorry, but you can't Americanize the Late Late Show. We don't need Joan Collins. We don't need um, Brad Pitt. We don't need Amy yes. Sturt. Like you said yourself earlier, let's get real people on that show. Let's real get, people get with stories. People. Yeah. The, the other thing that would concern me, if they're going to go down the American routes, Patrick, I mean, all those American chat shows, they have five, six, seven, eight writers who are writing the gags, who are writing yeah. the intros, you know, yeah. so there's, yeah. a, there's a lot involved. And I wouldn't imagine those resources are going to be made available to Patrick Guilty. No, they're not. No. Um, come on, come on, Brad. We've all seen the scandal with RTE yeah. and the dishonesty and disloyalty to one staff member to overpay another staff member with no offence to Ryan Soberty. Um And we've all seen the deceit and the dishonesty. And we all know, even during COVID, when you turned on the RTE news, you weren't getting the true facts. You had to go to CNN or Sky to get the global facts on COVID. RTE is renowned for being a propaganda station. I mean, look at what um, what Joe Duffy is allowed to get away with. What what, what do you mean now, in terms of what, him taking a particular well, stance on something, to, is it? In reference to the big hoo-ha he created over the Wolf Chong song. Yes. I mean, that Wolf Chong song has been in all of our kitchens for many of our years. Um, there are certain topics Joe Duffy will hit on, and unlike yourselves at Chip FM, you will pre-warn somebody or say to somebody, look, we don't want names mentioned here and all that, because that has to be done. I understand the legalities and all of that. Mm. But with Joe Duffy, it, to me, it's car crash radio. I don't like Joe Duffy. Yeah, well, you know, I've put my hands up about this. I admire Duffy. I, I, I think what he does looks simple, but I know, God knows I know it's not uh, simple. And I think he's good at it. But yeah, there are times when he takes a particular he takes a particular stance on something and it appears to be his own stance as opposed to facilitating discussion, maybe. Patrick, it was great to talk to you today and I hope uh, we can check in with you about the Late Late Show over the coming weeks. And who knows, you might change your mind. I'll be keeping in touch, and I'll be keeping an open mind, to be honest, Brad, but I will be keeping in touch with yourself. I'll give it a couple of shows, and he would have to do something serious now at this point to impress me to stay tuned. All right. Patrick, thanks for your time this morning. News and information's on the way. Tip today with Fran Curry With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie Welcome along to the second hour of Tip Today. Uh, keep those calls coming in to uh, Emma. It's a free phone number 1800 938 007. You can text and WhatsApp. 083-311-3311 and of course you can email at any time at all and that's tip today at tipfm.com I'm joined now by Finnegoyle Minister for Enterprise, Trade and Employment Simon Coveney. Minister, good morning to you. Good morning, Fran. Thanks and for having me on. You're very welcome indeed. Um, you're fresh from your party's thinking in uh, Limerick. My understanding of these events, Minister, is that they provide an opportunity for the rank-and-file TDs and senators to influence and maybe interrogate party uh, policy. However, listening to listeners and contributors last week, 
on the programme, the skepticism about these think-ins. I mean, for instance, will policy or decisions be altered because of opinions expressed or opinions you might have heard in Limerick over the weekend? Well, look, I mean, these these events are really about trying to get the uh, the the party together uh, after the summer recess uh, to focus on the challenges that we face to make sure that um, uh, that we're in tune with with how people are thinking uh, and the stresses and uh, worries that families have, uh, and so that's why you know we had we had some outside speakers, um, one of them actually from Clonmel Credit Union, uh, uh, the other from a family resource centre in in Tralee, uh, to really focus on the cost of living pressures that, that, that families and households are under so that we can shape a budget around responding to that. And we have a budget in less than three weeks' time. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I do think they're useful. Um, of course, there's a whole sort of media messaging issue around them as well. But I can assure you there was a lot of substan- substantive discussion between senior decision-makers, um, ministers, backbench TDs, senators, councillors. We had a lot of councillors there as well on Saturday. Uh, and really this was, you know, from a Fine Gael perspective, it was a gathering of uh, of our public representatives, both local and national, uh, to make sure that we're focused on working hard and delivering for people. I mean, that's that's what, what the thinking is about. There's all sorts of other, you know, commentary uh, uh, in terms of the state of the parties and next year being an election year and all the rest of it uh, that goes on as well. But at its core, uh, this is about a party like Fine Gael and the other parties are the same, prioritising what they need to do over the next few months to respond to people's concerns. Uh, and that's, uh, that's why we focus primarily on, on agriculture, uh, on, on crime uh, and, uh, and resources for the Gardaí, uh, but most importantly on cost of living uh, and the, the pressures that families are feeling, whether that's childcare, uh, whether it's their mortgage payments, uh, whether it's energy costs, um, and so on. Uh, and I think from, from that point of view, it was it was quite effective. And I'd like to talk to you a bit more about cost of living in a moment, but several sources quoted in the newspapers, Minister, that there was a poor showing at uh, the think-in with uh, one, as they described it in the paper, a well-known senior TD calling the turnout atrocious, uh, and that was in the Irish Examiner. Is that an indication of poor morale in the party now? Well, look, just just to clarify that, I, I think that they were talking about the first session that was being held. Um, you know, I was late to that first session. So was the Taoiseach. So was Martin Hayden. Um, uh, so was uh, one or two of our MEPs because we were meeting the IFA, you know, and, and that meeting went on a lot longer than was planned. You know, I think we planned a meeting for about 20 minutes and, and we met for more than an hour. So, so yeah, there was... There was um, some people who would have been at that first session were were actually working, talking to farming organisations about their concerns, uh, uh, and you know I think it was the right thing to do. We then we then joined the session, and there was a lot more people there from then on. Mm. Um, but, but I think were I think you disappointed? Were you disappointed that, with the honesty. were you disappointed with the overall? Uh, turn out to the thinking uh, because there there were some stats in the paper. Fifty five members of the parliamentary party, including TDs and senators and MEPs, just thirty seven showed up at the Strand Hotel. Sorry, Fran, I lost you there for a second. No, I was Apologies. just giving you some of the stats that was quoted in the newspaper. I mean, fifty five members of the parliamentary party, TDs, senators, and MEPs, but just thirty seven turned up at the Strand Hotel, Minister. So, 
you know? Yeah, well, look, I mean, different people came at different times. Um, yeah. That's what I'd say. Uh, um, and So, you know, so, it's, so a, it's not a reflection of morale in the party then as far as... I don't think so, you know? I mean, yeah. I, I, I saw, I mean, certainly the conversations I had um, uh, were, were about focusing on getting this budget right, uh, preparing the party for election season, which is what we're moving into next year. You know, we're going to have local elections, we're going to have European elections, we're going to be in the lead into a general election, which... Uh, will either be at the start of, of 2025 or at the end of 2024. Um, so, you know, we haven't had elections for quite a while. Um, it, it seems like a long time now. Um, but but certainly that's all going to change next year. Uh, and so I think that really has energised Fine Gael uh, and is obviously, as as always is the case, uh, focuses on us on uh, us as a party on, on responding to what, uh, to what the public expect of us, which is to provide good government and to support families uh, that need our support. And that's that's really where the, the focus was. A large majority, 7 out of 10, uh, as it seems, uh, support the abolition of USC in the lifetime of this government. That's according to new uh, Red Sea poll findings yesterday. High expectations, Minister, around tax cuts, uh, increased uh, spending in the budget. Many of us, of course, heavily impacted by the cost of living and recently excise duties being reimposed on fuel, not helping with that. Coffers are yeah. overflowing, you see, and they, this is what's thrown people. And so there are great expectations out there. Will there be disappointment? Well, look, no one likes paying tax. Like, we we know that. So, I mean, those, those surveys are, are no surprise. Look, I mean, our... Um, you know, our focus has been for the last number of years now to try and reduce the tax take, particularly on middle-income earners who are paying for everything through their taxes, most of whom are above most of the thresholds in terms of getting state supports for various things. Uh, and that's why, you know, somebody who's, uh, who's earning €40,000, for example, which is slightly below the average wage in Ireland now, but it's, a, it's still a, a decent wage, Someone on €40,000 since 2015 is now paying €3,000 less in tax than they would have been uh, five or six years ago. Uh, and so that, that's because Fine Gael in government has, has constantly tried to focus on allowing people to hold on to as much of the money that they earn as possible. But of course, we've got to have a stable and steady tax take as well uh, to make sure that we can pay for all of the things the state needs to pay for, whether it's health or education or disability, uh, um, our housing, uh, and so on. Um, so, you know, w- we are fortunate as a country at the moment that we have a very strong economy. We have almost full employment. Uh, we have a big budget surplus. Uh, but we also know that some of that budget surplus is based on corporate tax receipts that may not uh, be permanent. Um, and so we need to be careful. And the one thing this government, uh, and, you know, I'm very, very focused on this personally because I was there as a minister. Uh, when we took over back in in 2011, and the country was in a very dark place, both financially and from a jobs perspective, and many, many households were very worried for the future. Many parents saw their children having to emigrate. Uh, And so we need to make sure that we don't make the mistakes of the past, that we don't spend money that we can't rely on in the future. Um, uh, And that's, I think, why the government is saying to people, look, we will give a lot back in this budget, um, just like we did last year to respond to the cost of living, to respond to energy costs, to respond to childcare costs, uh, and so on. We will give a lot back, but we will also make sure that we don't overspend in a way that allows the Irish economy at some point, potentially in the future, uh, to, to suddenly find that it can't pay its bills. Uh, and that is 
Mm. That is that has caused so much pain in the past. We're not going to repeat it, and I can promise you, Fine Gael and government will never allow that to happen well, again. I, the only thing I could tell you, and again re- to reflect to you what we hear from listeners here, is that you know households are still finding it very very hard to get by because I mean you speak about some of the benefits, but that's cancelled out by the the cost of living, and of course we had those yeah. excise duties being reimposed and the possibility of more. Um, excise duties coming in October again. So the cost, I mean, have a look at the garages now, the cost of uh, petrol and diesel. It's astronomical yeah. again, you know. No, it's... no, I'm, I'm very aware of that. As someone who spends a lot of time on the road. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, look, you know, the, the government is going to look at that. Of course we will. Uh, and we need to make sure that... In that the budget... may not happen in October then. Well, let's wait and see. You know, that's a that's a decision for the government. Yes. I mean, but but don't forget what what we're doing here. I mean, we're essentially reimposing taxes that we cut because of the cost of living pressures last year, uh, and we said that we would have to obviously put back in place, um, you know, um, excise um, because it's an important revenue stream. Having said that, we have to measure the pressure that families are under. Uh, I think you will see, for example, more. Uh, energy credits, um, you know, as we did last year, uh, you know, we gave 800 euros towards the cost of every household in the country uh, uh, in terms of their energy bills. I think you'll see more supports like that coming this time. Um, you'll also see more supports uh, to try to reduce childcare costs again, uh, uh, to, to make sure that, um, that parents can bring their children to GP um, at lower cost. Um, so there's a whole range of things, free school books now uh, in place. These are all things that are that are funded by um, uh, by go- the government making decisions to spend taxpayers' money in a way that can help to reduce pressure, financial pressure on families, uh, and and that goes by the way for uh, for the cost of petrol and diesel as well. We have to obviously consider uh, whether it's appropriate to uh, to reimpose. Uh, full excise. Well, well you know uh, what at people. At a time when petrol and diesel right. is, well, is, is increasing. You know, you know the people are screaming at the radio. Radio, it's not appropriate to to, to do that in October because it's so high at the moment. I was taken to task, Minister. Yeah. By the I talk- hear that, by the way, uh, yes. but, but but that's not my call alone. So you know, this is this is a decision that will be made by government collectively, yeah. uh, in the context of all the other things we're doing for people in the budget. Well, one of one of your councillors. Um, uh, Declan Burgess uh, spoke to me on the program um, uh, last uh, Friday, and he asked me to put it to you and to name him, which I'm doing now. That <laughs> okay. that you know something needs to be done about uh, the excise because he thinks it's very unfair yeah. on people, and that's that's what he's getting. So I, I said I'd mention that to you. No, look, I hear that. I hear yeah. that from Declan, and he's uh, he's well able to to get his point across, as are many of the of the other Fine Gael councillors across Tipperary too. All right. I was taken to task by the Taunashta last week, Minister, for being negative, as he saw it, about our health system, which surprised many of our listeners. Your thinking was in Limerick, so I'm sure there was talk about the difficulties experienced by patients and staff at UHL. Yeah. I mean, do you accept, because the, the Minister of Health accepted it on this programme last year, but then he sort of changed his mind about it. Um, the reconfiguration of services to UHL, it has been a complete failure as most people would think. Would you go along with that? Well, what I would say is that the patient experience in UHL is not what it needs to be. Uh, and there are far too many people who have um, who are not getting the support that they need. Um, that said, I think the staff in UHL are doing heroic work, uh, but are under huge pressure. Um, uh, and, and so we as a government, and obviously the Department of Health and the HSE, uh, need to, to find a way of 
uh, of providing more supports, uh, having better management systems to make sure that we better we get better outcomes for patients. You know, and uh, UHL uh, is is consistently uh, one of the hospitals under the most pressure across the country, um, and uh, and and government needs to respond to that. And and we are, by the way, in terms of providing more beds, more resources, more staff. Uh, but we need to focus on that because um, clearly, uh, having been in Limerick, uh, University Hospital Limerick needs to be a priority for uh, for government, and and it is. Um, but it's um, but it's under it's under a lot of pressure because it's dealing with so many patients at the moment. Yes, I, I have been hearing similar answers time and time again about UHL, but I I see no success. To, I mean, the, the the simple answer, no, as, as, as most people would see, it would be the reopening of Nina Ennis and St John's in terms of emergency departments, Minister. Yeah, well, look, I mean, you know, that that's got to be a a a clinical decision. Uh, that's that's um, that is uh, made on the basis of. You know, healthcare advice and expertise, uh, as opposed to political advice. Um, you know, and that's all I'd say. I mean, there is no shortage of resources going into healthcare at the moment. We're going to spend over 23 billion euros on healthcare this year. You know, I can remember a time in government when we were trying to make do with 13 billion. Um, so, healthcare budgets over the last, you know, 12, 13 years have effectively doubled, um, and will increase again next year. Well, it's um, more so, about management so than money at this stage, yeah, isn't it? It's a, well, it's about management. It's about staffing. Um, there are lots of vacancies, even though we've taken on literally thousands of new nurses and doctors uh, and administrative staff over the last number of years. Um, uh, it's still, uh, it still doesn't seem to be enough. Uh, and, um, you know, some hospitals in the country are getting it right and have improved uh, in terms of waiting times, reduced trolley numbers. Waterford, for example, seems to be getting it right from a management point of view at the moment. Um, you know, I, 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 um, and we need to learn from that and make sure that those practices are, are adopted elsewhere as well. Um, where farming is concerned, and you mentioned yourself, it was priority for you at uh, the Think In, much protest by the IFA. Uh, last week and of course farmers very very angry and very unsure of their situation uh, I, I was taken though by the fact that your own uh, Senator Tim Lombard he is calling for clarification from the Minister for Agriculture to farmers on the issue of nitrates um, would you go along with that? Well look I mean you know Tim Lombard is simply re- reflecting the concern of his constituents in West Cork you know and uh, he's trying to advocate for them as best he can um, we met the IFA, had a long meeting with them. Um, uh, the nitrates issue was one issue. Uh, they had a number of other issues as well in terms of uh, delays in payments um, uh, and also um, uh, uh, specific asks in terms of beef suckler schemes and, and, and sheep schemes in terms of financial supports. But, but the big issue undoubtedly is, is around uh, the, the proposed uh, changes to the nitrates directive coming from the Commissioner from the Environment. Um, and, um, uh, and, you know, the IFA ask of us in Fine Gael was for a face-to-face meeting with the Commissioner so that they could outline the, the really good work that farmers are doing to protect water quality at the moment and uh, to, to impress on him the impact that the proposed changes would have on thousands of of farmers that are farming under what's called a, a nitrate derogation, which effectively allows them higher stocking rates uh, than they would otherwise uh, be allowed. 
Uh, and that's because we have a grass-based system here, yeah. which is very different to uh, to how most countries produce milk. So, you know, we felt that that was a very reasonable ask. Uh, and so uh, the Taoiseach has agreed to write to the commissioner to ask him if he'd come to Ireland uh, to actually see for himself. Yes. Um, the the, um, the operative the, uh, phrase in what you're saying to me there is is face-to-face. I mean, with your experience of diplomacy um, internationally, you can't have thought it proper that the Minister for Agriculture had a Zoom meeting with the Commissioner on something of such vital importance to Irish agriculture. Oh, look, I mean, to be fair to the Minister for Agriculture, like, like I know Charlie McConnell well, he's, he's a good minister, he's a very smart politician. I mean, he meets the, the Commissioner all the time uh, when they have meetings in Brussels and has discussed this issue many times with him. In fact, he's in Brussels today, and I suspect he'll probably meet the commissioner in person today. So, I mean, I wouldn't read that much into into the Zoom call. There's been a lot of commentary around that. I think it's a little unfair on the minister, I have to say. Um, um, uh, and um, so, you know, mm. that's the, what I'd say on that. The, the optics, on, though, on the are, are, are bad issue, in though. terms of, as you say, the substance of the issue and the importance of yes. the issue. The optics are bad that it's it seemed like it only warranted a Zoom call, if you know what I mean. No, well, look, I mean, th- this issue has been in discussion with the European sure, Commission yeah. for many months. Mm. Right? So this was this wasn't down to one Zoom call. So let's not pretend it was. Um, the the key issue here is that even though water quality in Ireland is pretty good in comparison to most other European countries, the trend in terms of water quality in some areas uh, is not trending in the right direction. And so the, uh, the European Commission. Uh, Commissioner for the Environment, not the, not, not the Commissioner for Agriculture, but the Commissioner for the Environment is concerned about that and, and has asked Ireland to do something about it. Uh, and, and the focus has been on what's called a nitrates derogation, which effectively allows uh, many far, uh, dairy farmers primarily, but some beef farmers too, uh, to use up to uh, 250 kgs of organic nitrogen per hectare which effectively impacts on stocking rates, the amount of cows you can have per hectare on your farm. Um, In most of Europe, the limit is 170. Uh, And so what the commissioner is now saying is that that he wants to reduce in areas where water quality is going in the wrong direction, uh, those limits from 250 down to 220. And of course, the knock-on impact on about 3,000 dairy farmers, because there's about 7,000 dairy farmers Mm across Ireland operating under derogation. Um, about half of those are already operating under the 220 figure. Um, but the other half are operating between 220 and 250. And they're the ones that will be impacted, many of them in, in Tipperary and also in Cork, where I'm from. Um, some of those, by the way, in areas where water quality is improving, can stay at 250. Uh, but there's, there's in and around 3,000 who will have to adjust potentially under um, what the commissioner is asking us to do. Uh, and so clearly we have to respond to protect water quality, but we've also got to try to ensure that there are flexibilities there and supports there for farmers to help them do that. Um, because because this has a knock-on effect on land prices, for example. So dairy farmers that need to get more land to be able to hold on to the same number of cows uh, as a res- uh, 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 in response to this change uh, are driving up land prices for all of course, the other and, farmers. And that's a huge well. issue. Be- before I so, let you go... So like, these, are, these are big issues, but can I say, and I'll have a chance to talk to a lot of farmers at the ploughing match this week. I'll be, I'll be at the ploughing tomorrow, uh, mm-hmm. as will you know, tens of thousands of others. Uh, and I'll have an opportunity to talk to farmers face-to-face about it. We will do everything we can 
to try to make sure that we protect and support farmers through this transition and that we try to negotiate as many flexibilities as possible. But the bottom line is we do need to protect water quality and farmers recognise and understand that. They have a responsibility to do that um, and, uh, and we'll work to keep farmers in business and also protect water quality. Okay. Both of those things need to happen. Just before I let you go, can I ask you about uh, what's in the Times today? The Tarnished uh, talking about a provision of a further €23 million Euro to uh, Ukraine. He spoke about the fact the EU was yeah. now in the long haul in support of uh, Ukraine. Um, and I'm just kind of confused a little bit because he goes on to say we would still be part of that non-lethal aid context and still our Irish troops are providing weapon training to Ukrainian armed forces. Now this is a departure indeed and I think it's a departure that is not fully appreciated by the Irish people, you know. I'm not sure it's that big a departure. Um, you know, we were, uh, we were training uh, Malian soldiers in Mali uh, under a, um, a UN-supported uh, training mission there. Uh, I visited them, actually, when I was Minister for Defence. Um, you know, Ireland is, uh, is militarily non-aligned, but we're not neutral on a lot of things. You know, we're not neutral on this war as to who's at fault, uh, who's committing war crimes, uh, who is driving millions of people out of Ukraine um, uh, in fear of their lives. Um, you know, this is this is raw Russian aggression, uh, and and Ireland is taking sides. Uh, what we're not doing is we're not providing weapons or ammunition uh, to that conflict uh, because Ireland doesn't do that. And well, I, I don't we think are we teaching should. we are teaching Ukrainian soldiers what, how to kill. We're we we're, we're trying to help Ukrainian soldiers to stay alive. Uh, we're trying to help them to uh, to demine more effectively when they're uh, when you know a quarter of their country has mines all over it. Um, uh, uh, we're trying to make sure that children don't step on those mines in a year's time on their way to school. Uh, that's what we're trying to do. But I mean, I um, I could not, in all conscience, uh, say that Ireland is is neutral in this conflict, and we will sit in our hands and do nothing. Right. Even you know, though we, the majority have... of Irish people in polls, time and time again, we treasure our neutrality, Minister. Yeah. No. And and we define that neutrality by being militarily non-aligned. In other words, we decide when Ireland takes sides. We're not sucked into that by membership of, of an alliance like NATO or anything else. You know, Irish neutrality is about Ireland's ability to decide for itself when we intervene, when we take sides, when we support oppressed people, uh, when we um, uh, expose uh, countries, no matter how powerful they are, when they're breaking international law. Ireland does that all the time, and we should be proud to do that. That's what that's what being a member of the international community well, means. Many people, here, particularly on this program, and here, most people, it, by time, the way, time and time, I beg your pardon, Minister. Time and time again, people come on and say, "Well, would we not be better employed to be promoting peace and to talk peace all the time?" I, I hear very little talk of peace, Minister. Sure. Look, if we thought, I mean, I I sat on the UN Security Council for two years representing Ireland. Uh, as a Minister for Foreign Affairs, talking about peace every time I got an opportunity. I mean, we would love to have a basis for peace here. But for peace to happen, uh, Russia has to take its troops out of its neighbour. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, you know, Russia has invaded their neighbour. That's what's happened here. Uh, and, and in order for there to be peace and for Ukraine to survive, Russia needs to pull its troops back into its own country. Like that's, that's the ask. 
So, I mean, if we thought there was a basis for peace and a negotiated peace settlement that was fair to Ukraine and mm. consistent with international law, we would and we are advocating for that. But we don't believe that Russia is interested in peace right now. Uh, certainly not on the terms that are acceptable to Ukraine. Yes, but... Uh, and so, but, but I can promise you, there's no country that advocates more for peace than Ireland, right. whether it's in the but Middle you, East... I don't, I don't have to in, tell you what happened. across the Sahel and Africa. Um, yeah. You know, we, not only do we advocate for peace, but we put our soldiers' lives on the front line to try to protect peace. And those lives have uh, been lost to two from time to time. But I, I'm just wondering, I mean, where Northern Ireland is concerned, I mean, sometimes, and your own party included, you have to talk to people that you mightn't want to be in the same room as, you know. Yeah, to... and Ireland does that all the time, both publicly and privately, uh, to try to protect and sustain peace. And one of the most powerful things about our peace process on this island, uh, outside of the benefits that it has for, for people living in Northern Ireland... Uh, and and down south, is that it actually gives a template to other parts of the world to show that peace can work. You know, and that's why Ireland gets so involved in commenting on the plight of Palestinian people, uh, the injustice that's imposed on them at the moment, um, uh, as we search for peace in the Middle East and we you know uh, maintain and develop a relationship with with Israel uh, uh, to try and advocate for that. Uh, that's why we also advocate in places like the Sahel. Uh, that's why we were in ver very involved when um, uh, when Ethiopia had a civil war a number of years ago. Um, uh, we're very vocal on Syria. Uh, we were the country on the UN, by the way, who was tasked with ensuring that we could keep um, uh, humanitarian aid flowing into Syria despite conflict there. And so, like, they're the kind of things that Ireland does, and we do it well. That's why the Taoiseach, the Tanishta, and Damon Ryan are all in New York this week. Uh, because the UN and world leaders are meeting there to try and look to see uh, how we can advocate for peace. So, you know, Ireland does that all the time, but that, is, uh, but that doesn't mean that we, that we don't take sides sometimes when there is a clear aggressor on one side uh, and, uh, and a country that is right. being bombarded Minister on the other. Uh, and, like, that is, that is the position. And on Ukraine... You know, Ireland has been extraordinarily generous and Irish people have been extraordinarily generous in terms of welcoming Ukrainians to Ireland to give them shelter and support. We've also been very generous in terms of the financial assistance we've given, which has not purchased weapons or ammunition, but has purchased things like medical aid, fuel for vehicles. Uh, and we are involved primarily in training Ukrainian soldiers around uh, uh, demining programmes first and foremost, okay. um, which, which can help to keep them alive. Minister, we appreciate your time this morning. Thanks very much indeed for coming on with us. Thank you. Good morning to you. Thanks a million. Cheers, Frank. That's uh, Fine Minister for Enterprise, Trade and Employment speaking to us there, Simon Coveney. We'll be back with you in just a moment. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Time now to have a look at global politics and uh, delighted to be joined as usual on a Monday by politics and economics uh, student at Trinity, Thomas Conway. Good morning to you, Thomas. Good morning, Fran. And good to see you today. For people out there who might think that uh, the Middle East is stagnant. Do you think 
they should think again? I think they should think again. I certainly do. I think it's a land of opportunity, Fran, at this point in time. We're at a, a critical juncture, I suppose, in, in the history of our planet, really, with global warming and other events. But one of the areas that is being reshaped fundamentally from the ground up is the Middle East. What, what countries specifically are we Specifically, the Gulf region of the Middle East. So yes. the Gulf economies, they comprise the likes of Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Qatar... Uh, they're among the richest and most vibrant on the planet. They're in the midst of a, a $3.5 trillion fossil fuel bonanza and the money is being spent on everything from artificial intelligence models to shiny new cities to sovereign wealth funds which roam the world's capital markets. All these kinds of luxurious things, incredible, incredible investment and incredible money flowing across the uh, yes. across into, into the global system. And what about politics and what about unrest and uh, the like? And this is the thing we usually associate the Middle East I mean look it's been a miserable two decades for the Middle East since since the invasion of Iraq we've had violence, we've had war, we've had bloodshed uh, you have civil wars in Syria and Yemen uh, but there is a sign now there is a sign that ever so slightly a period of detente may be setting in that these kind of civil conflicts are kind of uh, dropping back slightly and a, pe- a new period, a new area of, I'm, I hasten to say peace, I would love to say peace but certainly a more relaxed geopolitical landscape is setting in. Saudi Arabia and Iran which are the two major yeah. warring powers in the Middle East, they recently negotiated a detente in their relationship so they've agreed to calm, calm tensions between the two which is hugely significant because they're operating proxy forces across the region, across the entirety of the Middle East. There are also uh, various other examples. Uh, Four Middle Eastern countries have joined the BRICS Club. We spoke about the BRICS Club. Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa. This is this uh, club of... I suppose, influential global actors that's trying to expand its reach now. It's reaching out to Middle Eastern economies and embracing them. So that's another way for development uh, to come on stream and for these economies to develop. And what about their security, Thomas? It's an interesting point. It's an interesting point because you think the Middle East and immediately, immediately you're thinking, you know, civil war, bloodshed, violence, all these terrible things... But there is subtle hints now that the the countries of the Middle East are prioritising economics above above military affairs and above uh, above uh, above other all else really. So essentially, you have an emphasis on economics, uh, an emphasis on diplomacy, which is a kind of a newfound thing in the Middle East. And the Middle East has huge resources. We have to remember it is awash with hydrocarbons, awash with oil and gas. And even though oil and gas are unsustainable, obviously they're fossil fuels, they're going out of demand, they're still going to be in demand for a significant period of time to come. Their location, of course, is vital as well because it's it's a connection, isn't it? It is. It's a, it's a critical juncture in the world. It, it connects Europe, Africa, Asia. Some 30% of the world's shipping containers pass through the Suez Canal in Egypt. 30%. That's significant. 16% of global air cargo flies via airports in the Gulf. So that's flying through the lights of Qatar, the lights of the UAE, Doha, places like that. So... 
you know, it really is a, a bridge which connects the world and pieces it together in many respects. And that gives us huge advantages. It gives us huge advantages commercially, economically, uh, and in terms of transport links and that. It yeah. also has a young population. The population big is advantage, a isn't it? major yeah. asset, major asset. 55% of Middle Easterners are under the age of 30 compared to 30% uh, within the OECD, which is essentially a club of rich countries, uh, the likes of yes. Ireland included. So and even to look to China with uh, such an ageing population, you know? Cer- and, certainly. Yeah. And, and the Middle East is, I think, peering in different directions now. We see other countries putting an emphasis, taking the emphasis away from the Middle East, maybe the US more focused on Southeast Asia, focused on China. The Middle East is treading its own path now. Uh, it's focusing on its own sustainable development. Uh, it's focusing on building an era of peace and development. Development Now, whether that will be viable remains to be seen, uh, but it certainly is a reality that this is now a changed landscape, that the Middle East is is not the Middle East of old, it's not the Middle East of violence and bloodshed. They still exist, but it's certainly transforming itself into a new kind of landscape and an exciting one at that. Not so much positivity about Asia because, you know, democracy appears to be... Democracy is sliding, sliding badly in Asia, in East Asia. But why is the question many people will ask? Because there and there are a number of reasons. You know, there are multiple reasons for this, multitudinous reasons. La, uh, it's about the size of Latin America, Southeast Asia, population of about six hundred and ninety million people, home to a multitude right. of political systems. Uh, and again, just to fix it in our minds, what countries are we talking about? So specifically, we're t- we're talking about the likes of Indonesia. Thailand, Cambodia, those are the three countries that I've chosen to focus on because Mm. those are the three countries in which democracy has taken the biggest hit in recent times, in recent memories. They're all countries which once looked like they would be flourishing democracies, looked like they were evolving on a steady upward trajectory, but have now started to slide Mm. backwards. Look look at Indonesia, first of all, because they were considered to be doing democracy properly. Yeah, Yeah. they were considered to be making the transition. You had the long ruling dictator, Suharto, India was then, or Indonesia was then considered a standout democratic success. It made that transition transition from dictatorship to democracy almost seamlessly. Uh, it's the world's most populous Muslim country. It's a highly influential country. You know, lots of facts, interesting facts and figures about it. Uh, but the election of Joko Widodo, the current president, in 2014, that seemed to cement the transformation. But in time, as often happens in countries like this, the leader, Mr. Widodo, uh, kind of scaled back his his democratic credentials and started to eat into the political system, erode the democratic legitimacy of the country. Uh, And in the years since, that has become all the more prominent. The beginning of his rule was promising. As time has moved on, he has become less and less promising. And there are now serious concerns about the overall health of Indonesian democracy in general. What about Thailand then? Thailand is another... The democratic setback in Thailand is perhaps even more visible. In in May, last May, a general election produced an emphatic winner, a new party known as Move Forward, which were this exciting new political political group, a group of youngsters, no less, uh, who have come to shatter the you know shatter old norms, shatter the establishment, and take on the political system. They have been squeezed out of power 
by former rulers. And I'm talking about one former prime minister in particular, a man called Taksin Shinawatra, who has been welcomed back into the fold. He was recently, or he was exiled for years from Thai politics. He has recently been welcomed back into the fold by the military uh, and by the ruling Thai what, political why? elite. Why? It's an interesting one. I think it has to do with family dynamics and wealth and power. Uh, he certainly, his daughter is the current leader of the Thai party, which is the party he once founded and, and, and built effectively from scratch, from the ground up himself. So there is a, a desire to bring him back into the fold, to bring his experience back into the fold uh, so that he can rule... Interesting. And and to look at Cambodia for me then, I mean, God knows, blood-drenched country over the time, but there were hopes for democracy. There were hopes in Cambodia, but the hopes of, they have little to show for it, Fran. Uh, and unfortunately, on August 22nd, there, were an elect, there was an election in which the opposition was banned. Uh, the long-standing strongman leader, Hun Sen, he stepped aside, but who stepped into his place? His son, Hun Mane. And he's now exactly likely to lead like his father with an iron fist. He is, by, by all accounts, Cambodia is now a hereditary dictatorship. It's not dissimilar from South Korea. We see all these tales. We saw Kim Jong-un featuring prominently in the media last week, his meeting with Vladimir Putin. Cambodia is now somewhat similar to North Korea in the sense that it is a hereditary dictatorship. And that is an element that... I think fuses all these countries together, something that all of them have in common, that there is a dynastic element to their politics. They are all families, uh, families of people in power who are taking on, passing the mantle from one generation to the next. You, you, and you'd wonder, did they learn anything from the killing fields, you know? Yeah, and, and it is a serious problem. It is a serious, because it's a setback for for the region in general, not just politically, but economically. All these things have economic ramifications. The economic uh, uh, implications in terms of government, uh, in terms of investment into the region, makes the region less attractive. So, a worrying case for everyone involved there. That's for sure. We ask you to have a look as a political figure for us every single week. It's old Abe this time, Abraham uh, Lincoln. When you, when you were looking, um, when you were researching it, what, what did you make of uh, the man? Yeah, honest Abe, old Abe. Like, I mean, he's consistently ranked among the most popular of US presidents. Among He's up there with the likes of, of Roosevelt and... Uh, Reagan sometimes, George yeah. Washington, but they often put Lincoln on a pedestal above all others. I learned a lot about him from just from in the course of my research in the past week. I learned, you know, he he stood up to slavery. He stood up and that was essentially his raison d'etre. That was the reason he got into politics, the reason he became prominent, the reason he became president and served so successfully. But he was a highly divisive politician mm. at the same time. And it was his opposition to slavery that divided America and led to effectively the civil war across the United States in the early 1860s. Uh, huge schisms in terms of the population. You had the Confederate States of the South uh, wanting to preserve slavery and preserve everything that had to do with that. You had the breakaway states of the North fighting against it, doing all they could to eradicate slavery. And Lincoln, of course, played a forefront role in that. But he came from relatively humble beginnings. He uh, he was essentially brought up in a log cabin in Kentucky, raised on the frontier in, in Indiana. He was self-educated, essentially, became a lawyer, the Whig Party leader, the Whig Party was kind of the 
predecessors to the modern day Republican yes. Party. Uh, he then became an Illinois state legislator and a US congressman subsequently from Illinois. Uh, in 1854, then, he was angered by something called the Kansas Nebraska, Kansas Nebraska Act, which opened the territories to slavery, and he re-entered national politics as a result of that. He wanted to confront the slavery conundrum. He wanted to confront and take on that question, and he wanted to heal the divides that occurred in American politics. Now, it could be argued that he, he deepened and, and made these divides even more entrenched. And that's one line of argument I've said, I've seen that was, you know, postulated or floated against him that he actually split the US even more so than, you know, prior to coming into office. But he was a man of principle. He was a man of ideals. Mm. And he stuck true to those ideals. And eventually he did win over uh, the, or the states of the North. And he did yes. establish the United States as we know it today. Right, but of course for his sins then he was uh, assassinated. He was assassinated. Yeah. Like like so many great presidents yeah. like JFK, uh, it, was, it was in a, a, a theatre yeah. uh, at night. The war had just ended, literally. We were just on the verge of, of peace coming to, coming to the region, coming to America uh, when he was assassinated by a, a fellow called Boot who was an ardent uh, anti- anti-Lincoln uh, campaigner. He was a slave party advocate or a slave, an advocate of slavery. Uh, and, you know, it was it was amongst the most tragic events in American history because it remains to be seen what trajectory the country would have taken had Lincoln been allowed to remain in power. He may well have brought it on a, on a path to further stability, on a path to further democracy. He may have been able to get those states from the south and have them working in cohesion with them in the north. But that didn't materialise. It turned out very yeah, different. We, we seem to be living in a time as well, Thomas, where we're re-evaluating history and historical figures and there's some re-evaluation of Lincoln going on at, uh, at the moment. And there's legislation uh, in place or will about to be in place to remove the Emancipation Memorial from Lincoln Park with that notion that some people, including um, uh, Eleanor Holmes, Norton believing that, you know, it wasn't just he who was responsible for the abolition of slavery, that, that black people themselves played a huge part. Yeah, it, well, know? it was a civil movement. Yeah. It was it was a movement that spanned across the country and across the south, mm. uh, across the north as but well. But without him, it, it wouldn't have happened. No, without yeah. him, it would have had... He was the... Sim- not, not only was he the symbolic leader, Fran, he was the real physical leader. Without him, the reforms wouldn't have been possible. Without his legislative power... And his shrewd political instinct, his acumen in politics, it just would not have been possible. He led, he led the US through uh, what was effectively a war-torn time, a war-torn, a time of dilemma and crises and serious, serious acrimony on both sides, bitterness on the part of people in the South towards the Northerners and vice versa. Lincoln led them through all that uh, and he came out on the far side of it in 1865 as yeah. as a true leader, uh, but also as a highly divisive figure. I'm delighted you mentioned it because it always amuses me as to how he's always portrayed in the very same way in every movie where Hollywood is concerned. There's always this soft music and this sort of inspirational image of him, is there not? Yeah, well, he's he is coveted by Americans. He, yes. he is loved. You know, he appears on, I think it's the, the $5 bill, I think the, the one penny or one pound or so, you know, yeah. the, the currency notes. You have the Lincoln Memorial in Washington. Uh, you have various other tributes to him across the nation. And Americans are really, really proud of him. 
yes. on what he has done. And the the one they want to remove, I think, is the the depiction of him with kind of slaves at his feet or something like that. Yeah, and that is, is that, that is the that somewhat controversial thing. aspect. We're we're just about out of time. In fact, we are out of time. But in terms of watching out for, if you were to pick one thing, what what would you say we should look out for in the week to come? I think. Thomas? Well, I didn't mention it here, but all eyes in the United Nations General Assembly in New York, uh, New York, yeah. our, our own Taoiseach Leo Varadkar making an address today. U.S. President Joe Biden's speech later in the week will be very significant. A lot of significant actors deciding to eschew this one, to not to turn up. No Rishi Sunak, no Emmanuel Macron, they're both busy. No Vladimir Putin, no Xi Jinping, they have, they're occupied elsewhere as well. God knows mm. what they're up to. Do, does that dilute the... I don't know, the efficacy of something. I think it does. I think it it hugely, it it undermines the credibility of the UN as a whole and it undermines the the whole stature of the event because it's supposed to be a global gathering, a global get-together of leaders uh, from all corners of the earth, from the most significant powers. But when you have so many deciding just not to turn up at the event, it definitely undermines the credibility. There is no doubt about that. All right, you're also advocating that we would have a look at what uh, uh, Ursula von der Leyen is doing that call of history, she's backing EU membership for, for Ukraine. For Ukraine, yeah. you're not a yeah. hugely significant step and yeah. of course she's leading on for a for a new push to become EU commissioner to serve a second term and that would prim- presumably become a, for, a core focus of that second term. Alright, Thomas, always good to Pleasure, see you. Thanks, thanks very much indeed. News and information is coming up. Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Welcome back to the final hour of uh, Tip Today. Bill was on to us from Carrick. He says he always enjoys listening to Thomas Conway. Wonderful clarity in his voice, it says here. And he delivers some very interesting interesting information. We noticed that he has been delivering news on Tip FM uh, on Sunday as well. Watch out, Fran, it says he's after your job. Well done, Thomas. One is great to see uh, somebody as young as he is and as informed and a great uh, personality as well. So well done to Thomas and thank you for that, Bill, on 83 Now, we're with you every single weekday morning, of course, with uh, Tip Today from 9. And Helen spoke to me this morning about the Late Late Show and it led her to telling us a surprising fact that I certainly wasn't expecting. Here's a little of what she had to say to us just after 9 o'clock this morning. And it brought me back to Gabor and his sense of humour when he was talking about condoms and he was showing how to use it, put one on, and he said, pardon the expression, but <laughs> roll it there, Colette. <laughs> oh, you're bringing me back lovely memories now. That's, oh, my that's, God. Do you, by the way, do you know why they're called Johnnies? I don't know why they're called Johnnies. Now, why, why are they called Johnnies, Ellen? I'll tell you why. In the 17th century England, there were they, they had a form of condoms and they were made by a pharmacist called... John Miles. Right. And they called him Johnny Miles or Johnny's. I, do you know, every day is a school day, Helen. I, I didn't think I'd get information of that quality from you this morning, but... <laughs> oh, there you go. You never know what you get from me. My head does a lot of things. <laughs> Helen, and I sometimes love Sometimes it. it goes into mad areas altogether. <laughs> never, Helen, never. That's uh, Helen speaking to us this morning just after at nine o'clock. It just goes to show you when we go off on tangents on this programme, we do it in great style indeed. I hope we won't go off on tangents now. I'm delighted to be joined in the, the studio by John G. O'Dwyer. How are you, John? I am very well. The first thing I have to 
to say now, like, RTE is this, that, you know, I'm ruling myself out for the job, you know, of, on tip today. I'm You're I'm, ruling yeah, yourself I'm out really, of that, are you? Me, no problem here. Thomas Conway may be a problem, but since they all ruled themselves out on RTE, I'll have to rule myself out here as well. <laughs> I always felt when that was happening that it was a sure sign that people were holding their hands up and saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I think what had been happening was the, the phone hadn't been ringing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they wanted to pile in. Uh, 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 that's great, isn't it? Um, walks and, by the way, first of all, before we go on, we've, we've drawn the curtains on uh, Walks and Talks for this year, but congratulations. What is that a great, great programme? So yeah, I think, well, it's, in a way, it's not me or it's not Alison. I think we had some fabulous guests oh, on brilliant. it. brilliant. And, you know, I'd never really spoken to him before, but the guy I was most impressed with was Johnny Lahey. Yeah, uh, I thought that was You super. know, and he was no angel when he was young. Yeah. He, he'll admit that himself. Yeah. And then he hit the buffers. But how he transformed his life, and he does seem, you know, to care about other people, people now. So it shows what you can do. And, you know, King didn't come out on the air much at all, but all the time he kept reminding us, I have... To to wish well my mother who's in in a home and uh, that kept going he seems to care for her enormously and then he didn't even see me but afterwards I was up in the shopping centre in Torres and there he was he'd taken her out of the home and he was bringing her in for, her, for supper so yeah. you know it was, and there was some and even John McGurk you know yeah, fantastic yeah, yeah I really enjoyed it, 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 it. but Father Iggy what, oh what a, god absolutely what a, and I mean, what a man you know yeah and the institutional church as well as that he came out and said it has no future but you need 40 yeah. minutes with these guys of course yeah. what is the future then I'd love to have asked him that. Where does he see the church? And maybe we'll have to ring him up and ask him yeah. about that. Whatever. Well, we spoke to him lots of times on, on the programme, and I always look forward to it, as I do with John Nahi uh, as well. You heard to talk to us about walking, though, uh, the, 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 this morning. Uh, it, let, put your tourism hat on you, <laughs> John, for a moment. The importance of walking to us now. Yes. You know, it's, it's vital, isn't it? Well, I'll tell you what I did... Uh, this is Monday, last Monday. I was over in the Rock of Cashel seeing off a group of people and they were doing St. Ecton's Way. Yes. And there was about 18 of them. And they came into Ireland specifically to do St. Ecton's Way, to walk St. Ecton's Way. They did. They saw the Rock of Cashel, by the way, but they didn't come in for any other reason. They came in to do that. Now, there are very, very few products in Ireland. I wouldn't say anybody ever comes into Ireland for the Cliffs of Moher alone or for the Rock of Cashel or for anything else. Yes. You know, they, what walking is one thing, and particularly pilgrim paths, and it's the same with the Camino. P some of those people flew in on Sunday, walked St. Ecton's Way, and flew out the following uh, Sunday without seeing, with seeing right. very little in Ireland. So specifically for specifically that. Specifically for that, and that is the thing I think we have to knock home to people. We have a great product, we have first mover advantage on a, on a, a week-long pilgrim path in Ireland. We mm. probably haven't publicised it enough or invested in it yeah. enough, but but it has, you know, that's the sort of transformation. And not only that then, they would have been close to the path. They were walkers. So all their spending had to be right. close to the path. There were three nights, I know, in Care House Hotel. But, but John, what are they telling you when they're going away? Did we look after them? Yeah, well, I think on the pilgrim, well, certainly this was Waterford Camino and certainly they yeah. were looked after. I mean, I had a chat with them and set them on their way, but I actually joined them for dinner in the Care House Hotel. And what they had there as well, you know, different things. There was actually, they had, you know, a sing-song there. They actually had music during the meal there. So, and then the highlight of their stay, which is, I think is tremendous, uh, is they go down and they stay two nights in Mount Mallory Abbey and overnights there and they absolutely love it. And you know who cooks the meal for them? on the first night they're there. Who? The Abbot. 
Wow. Is it? Uh, you know, Dom oh. Richard is a fantastic cook Isn't down there. So where do you get that anywhere else in the world where your food is actually prepared and served to you by the average? And seemingly it's the highlight of his week. He loves expressing himself through food. So like those are all the small things that make a difference. And you get then, and the way I think tourism is going, it's going now towards slow tourism. And we have to think of that rather than something where, you know, you come in in a week and to try and do the whole Wild Atlantic Way. We, it's into slow tourism and I think Tipperary is particularly well set up for that and we also then are working on the Lit- Littleton Labyrinth as well as that yes. and the shovels are going into the ground this week on that and that will be you know it'll be something different again because what I'm thinking is the normal greenways are reaching saturation point at this stage you know you got a huge benefit from the first one the Great Western Greenway the second one Waterford now they're kind of you know they're in every area and they, I don't think they will be as transformative in the future. But this is different. This is actually a peatway. It's through a bog. So it'll be, the, uh, you know, a, a unique selling point there would be a family for the first time. You can cycle into the heart of a bog for the first time in Ireland. Those are the sort of, of things where you've differentiated. And of course, we did it together as well. I mean, the great story about the finding of the Derry and the Flange oh, Chalice sure, and the human interest that yeah, was in that yeah. as well. And I'll give my own opinion on it that actually. Actually, uh, the webs who found it were actually quite poorly treated in yes. that particular thing. But in the media, it was it was the opposite that they were looking for five million or something like that. But that only happened when the two sides fell apart. Of course, and can I just take you back to what you said to me about the saturation there? Her blue ways mm. and green ways are concerned. I. Are you concerned about that? You, well, I think you the have to innovate those, do you, all the time. Do you think we need to stop developing those? No, because I think the thing is they have benefits in your, you know, they have benefits locally. For, locally. Yes. Okay. And they get people out and they keep people out of the emergency units in hospital, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, and, you know, as well as that for mental health, people get out into green spaces. Now, some have exceptions. For example, I think the Blue Way here, the fact that it's all the way from Clonmel to Carrick and Shore, it's a waterway walk all mm. the way. I think that is something that has kind of a uniqueness to itself. Mm. But we have to be careful now, and they're very expensive, about investing huge amounts in greenways. When yes. I was looking at it there, and just about every county council in the country has an application in for funding at the moment to do some kind of a greenway. You know, uh, you know, the, the first people, the first move advantage is always the best one. But then, as more and more come on board, you will find you need to innovate all the time. We've gone through the greenway phase. We certainly walking, but I think it's pilgrim paths, innovative things like uh, peatways, coastal walks, that kind of thing. I think that's the future. But slow good, tourism yeah. is it. And uh, the cyclists and walkers on some of these greenways mm. and blueways, they don't sit easily together all no, of the no, time. They I mean, don't we, absolutely. I yeah. mean, really, most of the greenways, I think they're most suitable for cycling. You know, there's no doubt about that. Yes. Somebody was asking me there lately now about doing a charity event down on the Waterford Greenway and I was saying, oh, that's very packed and that kind of thing and there's cyclists whizzing past you and everything yeah. else. You know, it may not be suitable for that. Now, the Waterford Greenway has been a success because it was the second major one that was done in Ireland. But I'd say at this stage we have about 15 greenways and, you know, it's... You see... the 
the cyclists then that go on it are the leisure cyclists. Yes. The people who are in cycling clubs who like to do 100 kilometres on a Sunday, they're not going to go along on those either. And remember that when you're crossing a road, you have to get off your bike and all that kind of thing. So it doesn't fit in with them as well. And then sometimes, I'm amazed actually when I've been on them, there actually aren't more accidents yes, on them because yeah. some cyclists are flying along. Yeah, we get a lot the, of complaints and uh, there's no bells on bikes nowadays. You, what you should do is... Well, press your bell and then when you come don't come up whiz up behind somebody if they are on the right hand side you press your bell first and then you say passing left or yes. passing right uh, but you don't come up and you suddenly and you whiz right. past them the only thing I will say as a very recent cyclist uh, you have walkers <laughs> you have walkers with the earbuds yeah, in yeah. and they're listening to music or they're listening to podcasts and even when you ring the bell they can't hear you yeah well you, as well as that when you're passing somebody <laughs> courtesy suggests that you also pass carefully and you yes. slow down remember the the care is with in all situations this is in hill walking skiing and everything else there's a person coming from behind because they have the duty of care okay one of our lists is saying uh, live on uh, St. Ecton's Way it's great to see jolly people walking and laughing uh, but we need to try and keep it tidy and that's James who's in Kit uh, this morning is that of concern to you keeping these ways tidy is that an issue even I haven't come across you it as an issue, okay. except in the sense that we need to keep the whole country tidy. Yes. And naturally, we're a bit of an untidy race. Yes. But certainly, you know, a lot of people go out on it, they watch it. And I, I, I have seen people out there on the way with their plastic bags going out and picking up all the, the litter that's along it. There right. shouldn't be litter there, but maybe this person might, if there is, you know, rather than maybe ringing in here, might say, look, get a plastic bag, go out. And if there are untidy people have been around, just clear it out. And your role on temporary tourism, John, I'm just wondering why why are we still selling the images of the Rock of Cashel and the the hills of uh, the the place in Clare and all of it, uh, Cliffs of Moher and all of this, as opposed to some of the the the, the pilgrim paths and that. Well, know? they're they're the signature attractions, but the answer is. I'm probably not 100% certain of exactly. I mean, I have been an advocate for a long time of doing things like the Pilgrim Pants and that, because as I say, you will get people to come in specifically for that. Now, yes. the Rock of Cashel and the Cliffs of Moher and the Blarney Stone and that, put them together as a portfolio, and they are extremely powerful. So we have to keep selling those as well. And they are, of course, the attractions that are known. But I think we have been extremely conservative. I mean, for example, you take the Rock of Cashel. Well, I did, you probably did it as well. Did you ever sneak in over the wall and climb up to the top? We used to sneak in under the gate when it was under the gate yeah, or in, yeah, at the, yeah. in, a, in at the Scully yeah. Monument. You get up there to the top. Now, I would consider selfies is what an awful lot is about. Mm. That is one of the finest selfie points in Ireland, but nobody is allowed up no, there to explore there. that. Yeah. Yes, you know, you could say, oh, health and safety, of course. No problem in Blarney Castle, which is even more dangerous. You put in, you know, some kind of a, a wooden scaffolding that will get people up there, and if the next generation don't like it, they can take it out of it, and the building hasn't been compromised in any way. The same thing with Trim Castle, loads of places. I don't know why, but if that was was there, people would spend longer on the Rock of Cashel and then be more likely to come out and say, oh, yeah, I'm a bit hungry now, I was up there for an hour and three quarters, I'll go down and have my lunch, rather than the standard thing of sitting into the car going right. somewhere else. Why isn't the OPW listening? Where they <laughs> well, I hope they are. Oh, right, and right. I'm going to mention that. I'm going to mention that. We have a tourism forum now going yeah. ahead on Tuesday evening in the source at 7 o'clock. And that is actually one of the points I will be making. And I hope the OPW will come along and, and listen to that. Now, I'm not saying there may be other reasons. All I do is I put forward 
which we consider this. Yes. Tell me why you can't do it. Like the way John F. Kennedy, tell me why not. Yeah. And yeah. that's what I would say about that. Why, too, the ecclesiastical side there is... People would spend more time. I would love to see the ecclesiastical site of the Rock of Cashel and Hor Abbey. And then when you come down off the Rock of Cashel, there's a sign that says Hor Abbey. And then we put our toe in the water, and maybe twice a day in the summer, we have the offering that there's a guide on the Rock of Cashel at maybe... A, Ten thirty and two thirty, who will take you down and tell you the story of Hor Abbey as well as that. Now there's some work going on, it I know, and they mm. are upgrading mm. around there. Yes. But those are the sort of opportunities. Often you don't need to build a huge new interpretive centre or something like that. If you look imaginatively of what you have there already, you can often very much do it. And in fact, I think you know the interpretive centres and that they're another thing that has shot their bolt as well as that. There's too many so, of yeah. them, and it's too easy on to get. You know, if you want information now on Michael Collins. You're probably unlikely to go down to some interpretive centre in Cork. You just go and like, you read a book or there'd be or loads of stuff or podcasts yeah, and yeah, of course, yeah. So and, I think... And, that, and the uh, forum, John, uh, yeah. that's taking place there, is, is, is that open to...? Open to anyone. Okay. And the whole idea is, I'm actually speaking at it, but the main thing is anyone can come in there and they can express their views. That's what it's all about. Ger Darcy, the county mm. chairman, is speaking there as well. But in a way, we are not terribly important. What the raison d'etre here is all these people coming in and, you know, and speaking their views. That's what we're hoping. I will hope, and I hope Ger will as well, to try and be controversial and simulate their views. But in the end, you know, if you're interested in tourism in Tipperary from any part of Tipperary, come to the source at 7pm tomorrow evening. Right. I'll meet you there. Ger Darcy will meet you. We'll have something to say. I, I hope I can get along to that but Big what race. I'd love to hear you discuss is accommodation because I mean that's the big issue isn't it? It is, absolutely. I mean, and that has spin-off effects then. I mean the hotels and the accommodation providers are doing quite well but what happens is then you have the who loses out are the coffee shops, mm. the small attractions, that kind of thing. I'll say it straight out, I'm all in favour of Ukrainians coming in here but our, the capacity of this country, as far as I'm concerned, is the capacity of the number of people we can look at, after well outside of the accommodation sector. That's the way I see it. And are it, we at saturation point where that is concerned? Yeah, well, I think we probably... Well, we're at saturation point now, even with the accommodation uh, sector included. Yeah. That's where that's where I see it. So it's the convents, it's the public sector buildings, it's the old monasteries, it's all of that. But, you, you know, you don't go in... You know, it, it would be like putting, I think, uh, you know, taking over, closing down a, a pharma factory, closing it down and saying, we're putting, uh, you know, we're putting a, a migrants, we're putting them in there. We should take them, we should spend money on them, but you can't compromise an industry, any industry, and tourism is the one that always gets the rough end of the stick, whether it's, it's with COVID, if you think of COVID, all the big, you know, industry, other industries powered ahead, pharma, tech, agriculture, everything else, they were caught out there, they're caught out now, Accommodation. They were. You remember? You remember? If you go back to recession, but go back before that. Thing you didn't remember the ash cloud? That closed down Europe yeah, for two weeks. Of course weeks. it did. Yeah. FMD going back there, terrorism, everything else. So it, it can be a fragile industry in that sense, and it seems mm. to be always the whipping by. And, That's what and I'm. Still, it's vital to us for the absolutely, future. Absolutely. And know, the spin off and the growth know. from it. And uh, it's also vital because it brings spending, like St. Eckland's Way, it brings spending into the smaller towns and the smaller villages. I know the groups that are going through on St. Eckland's Way, one thing, they almost always stop in Art Finnan and have a coffee there because they're passing 
passing by. That helps to keep those vibrant businesses alive. And what I'd love to see now is keeping villages alive, using the cooperative model, more cafes. You know, the, like the one up in Anacarty, mm. they're spreading maybe not fast enough. I'd love to see far more of those because, you know, they they bring life to a village and tourists can go in there and meet Well, I mean, you mentioned village. the one in Anacarty and that is the life and soul of that village now. Yeah. I mean, because within the village itself, there's not a pub anymore. So yeah. that is the social sort of outlet for most people. You know? And you're not clashing mostly with pubs anyway because yeah. even when there's a pub there, mostly now they'll only maybe open five nights a week and maybe open at eight o'clock. Yeah. I think that could be something like the old cooperative model, you know, where the dairy co-op spread yes. across the country, we say about 120 years ago. I think this mm. could spread across the country like a prairie well, fire wouldn't as it be well. Great? well it, started, be it started in Lockmore, in fairness, and they do it brilliantly up there as well. The 50th Annual Charity Challenge yeah. as well, that's taking place at Kerry. I know you wanted to mention that as well. I I just mentioned that as well. Now, we're nearly full up. Uh, we have, I suppose, about 130 people on it, and our max is about 140. So if anyone wants to come along, it supports charity. So what they can come along and they book in for this weekend, it costs them 225 euros. And what they'll get for that is two nights in a four-star hotel, a grand dinner Saturday night. But the main thing about it is, on Saturday, they can pick from a choice of six walks. If they always want reasonably fit and they always want to do Karen Tuchel, you can do it. A whole lot of won't bore your listeners with the other four walks but it comes down then in stages right down to what's called, you know a nature and heritage walk in Killarney National Park in between then you have the dinner and you have more walks again on Sunday you know but there's a walk for everyone you don't have to mm. do Karen Tuchel or Mangerton you can do your walk in the park I'm doing the Kerry Way the old Kenmare Road which is fabulous and over the years this is the 50th one and on average we don't go mad on it we try to raise about 5,000 and we have succeeded in doing that and over uh, the 50 of them then we're well over 250,000 at wow. this stage. So, and yeah, we're supporting Down Syndrome House in Torres and, uh, you know, Embrace Farm and all and, that. And well. would you agree with me, John? And I'm sick of saying it here, I'm sure I'm boring people with it, that we should all go to Kerry for a masterclass of, you know, how to develop tourism, yes. particularly to Killarney. I mean, you know. There's really? nowhere like it, yeah. absolutely. I've been dealing with them for years. I mean, they understand the product. Oh. They've been so long Should in you? it. They understand the give and take. Nobody, I mean, generally the Irish brewing product has Im- become has improved immensely over the last year. You know, when I'm going to Scotland and England, their tourism product is nothing like what we have developed here. And Killarney is the shining example. They have been there since, I think, was it 1861 when Queen Victoria came yeah, and yeah. <laughs> created Ladies' View and that. They understand tourism once the railways came in there and it's a huge right. tradition. And my God, I, can, I don't know anywhere in the world that does it as well. But with, a, with creativity and vision, yeah. Tipperary and the Glen of Arlo could be on par, do you not think? Yes, we, th- we can't go directly in with them, but we have to develop our own strengths. Yes. And I see strengths like, uh, as I say, St. Eglin's Way with Watford. I see the Peach Way, the, the Littleton Labyrinth. They're different. There's nothing in Kerry like those. And, you know, I, I also always think, and again, I'm only throwing out the question mm. because, you know, Father Celsus up there may have different ideas. Holy Cross Abbey. If you look at what they have done up in Ballantubber Abbey in Mayo, Holy Cross Abbey, I I think 
could be something, it could be a major attraction there, but it's not promoted. There is guided tours of it by volunteers and that kind of thing. I'd be asking the question, what way can we make that more attractive? We don't have to build anything, it's there, it's just getting the, the right. message out. So that's the forum, it's at the source? It's at the source, it? yeah. what, what time is that Seven o'clock. Seven o'clock, okay. and a chance to like, express your views on tourism there. Yes, you know. and, and uh, to be an opportunity to be frank about it as well. Um, your books, how are the books going, by the way? I know the 50 best Irish walks, that, that is selling like... Yeah, it has, yeah. Isn't that it? one has sold really well. I mean, uh, we brought it out in uh, 2022 and we had to reprint it in February 2023 and the reprint is now about three quarters sold out as well as that. So that's been my big... It's going to be a big seller, but the Pilgrim Paths in Ireland has still been... That has gone through four reprints at wow. that stage. So, wow. And then I have also Wild Stories. That's a one not so much for going out. It's you want to, you're sitting at home by the fire and the rain is lashing outside mm. and it's all the stories of the characters and the people who have populated the Irish uplands. You know we'll say we had a lot about Liam Lynch. Do you remember we sure. did that? Yes. Tom Barry. Yeah. All these people had recourse to the hills when they wanted to escape I suppose what they saw as British oppression and they always got the most support from the hill people. So in other words we'll say you know when the civil war w was on a lot of people would have been pro-treaty but you would go down to places like Aherlow and you would find the majority of the people still there would support the Republican cause. It's interesting, isn't it? And you've been kind enough to give us two books, but what I'll do is I'll hold them over if it's okay with yeah. you until tomorrow and we'll give them away. And yeah, I just tomorrow. say, if anyone wants more on the Kerry Challenge, which is going on 13th, 14th and 15th of October, if they ring this number 086-807-1753 and who's there is actually Breed will answer okay. that. Can you give that out one more time, John? Zero. Eight six eight zero seven one seven. All right, Emma will have that uh, just in case you've uh, missed it as well. John, great to see you. Thanks. By the way, we're talking tomorrow night in the source, isn't it? Yes, tomorrow it's night. Tuesday okay. night. Right, just so. for clarity. <laughs> All right, thanks very much indeed, John. We'll take a break. Back in a moment. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry in association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over fifty years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie. Now well, it's time for travel tales. With with uh, Fergal. Fergal O'Keefe is with me in studio. Good morning to you, Fergal. Good morning. Great you, to see you. You said that you uh, felt bad about speaking about uh, <laughs> exactly. international travel after I was talking about, well, you see, a mixture of it all is perfect. I know, it? and you know? do you know what? I mean, like, yeah, and obviously I'd I be the same. Everything you said, I agree 100%. You yeah. know, I, you know we, I've said it here so many times, like those, the mountains around here have got such massive potential to grow, you know, it really yeah. does. Because you, you spoke to us about the notion of having pods up there, having yeah. accommodation. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and huts and, you know, actually we were just saying there off air, like how that would fit in perfectly with the pilgrims. I, yes, I actually was looking, I don't know if you mentioned there about, there was a group, I think they were from America that were going through it over the last few days mm -hmm. and, and I was watching yes, he, them. He met them, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, it would it would just fit in perfectly huts, but even for people like any type of person that does it, because I've said it before, when you're up the mountains, like like I did Tour de Mont Blanc, and you're, you're staying in huts, and they can be very basic, like rooms. Mm. And then everyone eats together at night time or they could even, if you want to simplify it even more, people could have their own food. But, you know, that would make it very special then you're up on the mountains rather than have to come down. Yes. And it really is like it, it's definitely got well, that potential. Well, I was potential. up in uh, Shalala in Wicklow on uh, Saturday night and there's great friends of ours running the gig there. But they've developed huts or 
pods, as they call them, um, on their properties. Now, they look absolutely incredible. I mean, really, really incredible. Yeah, and there are individual people around Sure, there's the Sure Valley huts, maybe they're called, and they're up there, yeah. and they've got that on their farm. People are starting to put those, and then you really feel like you're in, the, you know, you're away yeah. from it all. So that that that's something that's going to grow. I, I I think so indeed. Well, there you go. You came up with the first in the program. So, um, Turkey. Why why Turkey? By the way. Well. One, because I've never been there before. Yeah. So it was on my... I'm surprised at that. I know, yeah. It's funny. It just, you know what, it just... Um, yeah, it's funny. I've been to Greece loads of times and I'd I'd always planned... I remember, like, maybe, you know, I've talked about my different travels and, say, over 20 years ago, I was travelling around the world and I remember talking to loads of... At that time, loads of Aussies and stuff and, they, and the place in Europe they all loved was Turkey. So, yeah, so I've been planning to go since the 90s but never got around to it. So eventually right. I, I got to go and it, it lived up to my expectations. I'll definitely be going back. I mean, it's such a massive country, so many different places. Like the area I went to is called uh, the Turquoise Coast or the Turkish Riviera, which is the southwest of the country. And that and, and the area that that covers is from Ishmir over to Antalya, which is 15 you know, 1,500 uh, uh, kilometres. Wow. So it's huge, okay. that area. Huge, yeah. And then there's loads of other areas. They've had their own concerns with politics mm. and indeed with natural disasters as well all, over the time. But as you say, it's a huge country. Well, that's it. Know? I yeah. mean, the area where the earthquakes were, that would have been, that was over a 1,000 kilometres away from the area I was. Yes. And even, you know, I was reading articles actually just over the last few days talking about Morocco and going, you know, if you've booked a holiday, should you go? And they're saying you you should go because it, the tourism sector is going to need those th- that money more than ever before. So it always is the tricky one where people say, oh, you know, not to go. But it actually it does help the economy. Yes. Well, you know, it, not, well not the it's the big driver thing. of their yeah, economy exactly. there, isn't it? So wh- whereabouts in, in, in Turkey then? So Reiner, they had a flight. Remember I said I always sort of, when, I've said it before, that when Reiner, I always look where the new flights are because, you know, generally they're actually cheaper. So it was really great. I can't, I can't remember the cost, but it was really good value. Um, and it's to Dalaman. So it was Dublin to Dalaman, which is the, I said, the southwest of the country. Reiner fly directly. Mm-hmm. So like the places where I went to, you know, some places were only half an hour from the airport and the furthest away was was two hours away, a place called Kalkan. And even there, I noticed that there was loads of, um, you know, options to get transferred to. So if you didn't want to hire a car, you could actually get transfers like really cheap from like maybe 10 to 20 euros per person for for a trip you know so these are buses yeah little little mini buses so if you didn't want to hire a car and the places that i went to you wouldn't need you know you would get away without having a car you know i went to a couple of different places but um so you def and even and if you did want to hire a car i mean our car like we were there for 11 nights and it was 600 euros for for the car so so it was the cheapest i've ever because you know so there's six of us in our family so I always have to get like a seven seater, yeah. which is mad expensive, you know, normally. And it was like six, it was so 600, but it was so cheap that I was like nervous when I arrived at the airport, I was going, is this going to exist? Will there be wheels on the car? And it was brilliant, actually, the way, you know, I find there's certain different things you can do, little yes. tips about. And there was no extra charges on top of that. It was just nothing. Six, yeah. Huh? And do you know what it was great is 
the, the cheaper car companies, they don't have a desk at the airport. So often you meet somebody who then bring you, um, you know, it could be like a, a K or two away from the airport, which actually I've, I've discovered over time that, you know, that's actually better because you meet someone, they bring, because the, the most I find, and I bet you everyone does, the most stressful part of, of driving abroad is when you arrive at the airport and trying to figure out how to get out. And there's always yeah. roundabouts and motorways. But this one actually... The guy was there and he had the car parked in the car parking area, showed us the car. And um, then when we arrived at the end of the holiday, we drove to the place which was just outside. But he then we followed his car to the airport and dropped the car at the airport. So it was, it was so handy, actually. I have Incredible. To say. And so where, where you're talking about the area, is this Turkish Riviera? Is that? Yeah. So that's yeah. what they call it. And are the turquoise coast and that's to do with the colour of the water. Yeah. But, and, you know, if you see, I noticed actually over the last, this year when I was going to Turkey, all of a sudden you notice all the ads that the Turkish tourist board were doing, they were doing a lot. And a lot of the the, the, the beaches and areas that they use to advertise um, is actually around this area for all of Turkey because there's some really amazing beaches. Mm. So one of the places I went to is called Fethiye or Ulundenis. So Fethiye is like kind of the har- the beach, the harbour town, but beside it is a place called Ulundenis. Um, I actually met a girl from Clamel with her kids on the flight, you know, so people are starting to go out there. She was going there. So Lundenis is that's the beach that you nearly always see advertised for Turkey. And it's like this amazing long beach that then curls around into a lagoon. And that's the photos they always show. And what I like, what I my, my ideal place is like, you know, it's like a lovely little beach area with mountains behind you. And that's what this has. The Taurus Mountains are called. And this place, Lundenis it's very famous for like paragliding. So people like jump off the mountains or do tandem ones. And, and I was gassed because like my first day there, I was walking along and I looked behind me and there's, there's people coming in, <laughs> like literally lending beside you. But it's like really cool. Lo- lots of Turkish people go there, Lundenis. I think it'll become more popular. But like, that's the other thing about Turkey is they kind of remind me of like Americans or maybe we mentioned about Kerry, mm. or maybe people in Kerry, they're they're hospitality-wise. You know what I mean? They're really they do it very well. They do it really. Yeah. They're really friendly. They're really professional. So, what what about accommodation and food? Then uh, something that's very important to be food and drink. But accommodation, first of all, yeah. I mean, is it uh, like are we talking about like Costa del Sol prices or is it no cheap? No, no cheaper and, cheaper and, again. and, and that's wow. the thing again. The other reason why I went one. So for me. The things we know we're a family of six, so it's like you're looking at flights, um, you know where, where is like the cheaper flights, and then accommodations the big thing. So like if you go to the Costas, the most popular place like Costas Hall, or you go to Algarve, place like that, the hotels, Airbnbs are often more expensive. So for the same price of what you would pay, say for a hotel or Airbnb in the Costas Hall you'll get an unbelievable place in, like just say, where I was, I went to a couple of places and the main place I went to a place called Cass and where that's really popular, more, more English people are, a lot of English people there is very popular with them. It's like a beautiful little old village but then surrounded in the hills all around were lots of villas and so there's loads of um, accommodation offering but you get an amazing villa with a pool for the same price. I was looking at prices, you know, like Croatia, and you just get like an apartment in a town in Croatia for like an amazing villa with like four bedrooms and your own pool. In, in So, you know, 
for the same price you get way more I have to say and then the yeah. food you know I was in the places I were you know the, the Turkish places would be cheaper mm. but if you go to the tourist spots they're all it's, it's similar enough prices you know yes. uh, to the cost of salt and, and, and like what that. about the food particularly if you go to the local places what what are we talking about yeah here? so you know like, like you imagine like kebabs and all that yeah, sort of, you yeah. know, the stuff that we think of they were all an offer but they all do the western food so yes. you know food wise they're so I, you know what I mean but they're so geared up for tourists like there was a lot of English around that area, say around Cass and Calcan. Mm. So um, there's a lot of uh, you know the food. You know you can go to the local places, but it's it's the same offering really that yes. you get all over. But is seafood very big? Yeah, there, and seafood is yeah. very. And, and I know it wasn't actually as expensive like um, last year. I was in Greece and the seafood was really expensive. So here the seafood wasn't, which okay. was great. It was kind of same price, but I found yes. that over the last years that the the seafood, but the prices. You know there was a lot of. Um, inflation there and prices have gone up actually in Turkey but that place I would really recommend Cass and there's two places sorry Kaikan is where I went to and the village beside it is called Cass and I really love there that's a spot I would love to go back to like a real old little town with a little harbour and in the morning like I I went from a great like there's great activities you can do if you were so inclined I wasn't to do the the paragliding in Ullandennis but in Kaikan Cass the famous thing Lots of people do there as they go off in these the gullets, these old wooden boats that used to be old fishing boats, and they're like pirate boats. And you can go off there, and, and from cash, you can do day trips. So, the place called Kekova, which is sort of maybe two hours to get there or an hour and a half, and a gorgeous boat. And it was lovely actually in the heat with the sea breeze. But it's it's this little, it's around this that whole area all along the tur- turquoise coast. The Lycians used to be. The, the people there like sorry, in BC but they were as sophisticated as the Romans and then the Romans took it over but all along that coast something that I love is all these old Lycian ruins so from Cash you can get a boat trip to a place called um Kekova, which and it's an old Lycian ruins it was an earthquake you know or I'd say around 100 BC or 100 AD and so the city just under the water even where they had like tombs they're a bit like um, you know the dolmens with a tomb on them and they were coming out of the water so your boat was wow. gliding over our old Byzantine churches that must from, be amazing it really was amazing and then there was a little town called Kail Kai which you can only get to even though it's on the mainland you can only get to it by sea and that'd be a lovely place to go to stay for a night or two a lot of tourists go there just like I did on those day trips so that was amazing and say Calcan where I was the old Lycian capital near there called Patara so it's amazing because it's one of the most famous beaches again in Turkey it's like 18 miles long and you know there's like little beach huts and places like that on it but right beside it when you're going in you actually like you're going into like a national park and it's this old ruins like you know like a smaller like much smaller but a smaller version like of Pompeii where you're walking along these old Roman roads or there was like an arch that was built in in um, 60 AD you know and I was just like going to my kids going you know like Jesus had just died when, when this was built or Hadrian had just come through and you're walking there's an amphitheatre there from around yeah. that time and you know you can sit in it so that's I, I love that The relationship with uh, the Greeks of course wasn't an always an easy one you, you were talking as well about the population exchange that, yeah. that's very interesting yeah. isn't it? And was that in the 20s I think? Yeah. Was it? yeah and it was actually 100 years ago so it was yeah. 1922 1923 when this happened so it was just after you know the Greeks had sort of 
they'd gotten rid of the Ottomans, but they had taken over. And then there was there was a bit like there was, there was a bit of a war with with Greece, so there was a population exchange. So for me, it was really interesting because last year I talked about a place I went to called Halkidiki, mm. and they were like they they were like they were celebrating at the time the this one hundred years the, the displacement. So the people had come, they were displaced from Turkey and it was around this area, like places like Kalkan, where they'd been displaced and they ended up in Halkidiki, which, you know, the Greeks gave no value. It was just sand and it was on the sea and now it's worth millions, obviously. They have all these properties. But the last year I was where they ended up. So this year I was where they were. And it was amazing because like in Kalkan and Kast, these gorgeous like Greek villages, but they're in Turkey. So it was, it was like, it was interesting because, like, the, yeah. my, my first night there in Kalkan, I was in a restaurant and it was called uh, Tessalani or it was called Salonica. And uh, and then I was looking at it and then I realised that last year I flew into Thessalonica, which had been, a, a, you know, an Ottoman city. So th- this was like called after this Greek Ottoman city, that's which great, was yeah. once part of Turkey. If you're, if you're into the history, it's, exactly. it's fantastic. And that's why it? I love yeah, it, yeah, like yeah. Greek, Turkey. For me, you know, beach holiday, you have to have that as well. I mean, it was funny, yeah. like bringing the kids around because it was actually very hot. It was in the like early 40s on this trip. So like I was bringing the kids along, like dragging around for, I only got a mesh get an hour going through this uh, old ruins before we had to go to the beach. But it was hard going now this year, I have to say. It was, yeah. You know, with with the heat, it was, you know. And uh, what what sort of uh, figures do they get up to? How, like in how the 40s, like early. Ooh. So, you know, so you kind of didn't want to do anything. It's funny how your, your body, yeah. you just don't want to do anything. So you're literally just going for swims by the pool. So... Like even, you know, we were a place like when we stayed in Lulin Dennis, they had like a water park and if the weather had been OK, I would have got brought the kids to that. But even the kids were like, no, nah, yeah, you're just, OK. Yeah, it was just too, too hot by yeah. the I don't even have to ask you. you you'd like to go back. Oh, d- yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, I mean, and another place we went to a place called Gokik, which, you know, you can get boat trips there. They call it 12 Islands. And that place, was a, it's a modern, like it's a new town, but with like there's loads of marinas with boats, if you like that sort of thing. And like loads of restaurants, a lot of Russian actually like mm. go there I mean the, the, like Turkey is now the number one travel destination in Europe last year they had 23 million they made 40 billion in tourism so wow. they've gone to number one now um, and so I think it's becoming more popular but uh, but if I, particularly Ulan Dennis is but Cast, Kalkan are the places that I'd really recommend. And it's, you know, Dalaman, it's like, yeah. Very good. And if, if I'm thinking about you, you were there at peak season, were you? Yeah, I was. I was there in, so I was there middle of July to the start oh, of August. So. And it was fine. I mean, it, like, you know what I mean? From yeah. the point of view. So I stayed in a mixture between hotels and Airbnbs and a huge difference, like, in prices and different places. But, uh, but the Airbnbs, like, were a great option, I have to say, from a, from a price-wise, you know. T- talk to me a bit about the podcasting and all of that. What can we expect? Are you you're back in the saddle again, so to speak? Yeah, I yeah. am. I, I'll be doing a Turkish special, which will be coming out. And I, I recently had a Longford one. So I have a few more um, recording and uh, f- a few other different things. I actually got nominated last week for the Irish Podcast Awards. Oh, very good. For one I did called GA Minor Moments, which I'm sure you know I've mentioned yeah, here before. Sure, I yeah. obviously a lot of tip people on it. I had uh, John McNamara, who's the tip. So it's it's basically interviewing GA people about their minor careers and then their further careers. But I had John McNamara, who's the Tipperary minor manager, on talking about Liam because he's a brilliant coach, talking mm. about dealing with kids. Um, and I also had 
Laura Dwyer on this year. But yeah, so I was nominated for that and I'm up against like the left wing, um, which is the Irish Independent and News Talk Off the Ball and the 42 Rugby Podcast. So I'm in good company. Yeah, you'll have no bother (laughs) whatsoever indeed. And that's of course Travel Tales with Fergal. Well no, that's the GA minor moment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And Travel Tales with Fergal, I'm on social media. So like if you, I'm always posting like say on Instagram, that's where you can find me or podcasts and I'll be putting up a, a Greek special actually now in the next week so people sorry a Turkish special so people can get more information and if they ever have questions always just send me a message on Instagram is probably the easiest and I can get back to you Alright Fergal great to see you as always thanks very much Lee, for bringing some sunshine into uh, the studio today thank you for that we'll take a break we're back with more in just a moment Join the conversation in Tipperary. Contact us through Facebook, Twitter or email tiptoday at tipfm.com. Councillor Jamie Morris was on to us to say I've been banging the drum of slow tourism in Tipperary because of our rivers, lakes and mountains for years now. In fact, I made it part of our development uh, our development plan even. Um, what John is... This is Pat Lynch on to us to say what John is highlighting uh, is with all the meetings on uh, tourism, the wrong people are attending and the wrong message is being conveyed, says uh, Pat. I'm not so sure about that because in fairness to John G. O'Dwyer, he's not afraid to uh, put out a view that might be controversial and, uh, you know, to stir up discussion and all of that. And I'm sure that's what he'll be doing tomorrow night from 7 o'clock at The Source in Thurles. Um, Fran, wouldn't your guests this morning be very interesting guests on The Late Late Show? Well, they would indeed. I mean, Fergal O'Keefe on The Late Late Show, wouldn't that be great? John G. O'Dwyer would be uh, super on The Late Late Show. Thomas Conway, all of these people, I agree with you, and that's the point I made earlier on. I mean, they won't be able to afford... A-list celebrities on The Late Late Show. So why not just to have a look at the wonderful, wonderful, uh, quirky, eccentric people um, uh, that, that we have. Liam was on to say, Fran, on a visit to uh, the Black Forest in Germany some years ago, there was uh, brilliant huts put up by the government so that an exhausted couple or family could rest there. There was a bunk, a fire, a stove. And these huts were many, so if weather suddenly changed... Um, you'd be close to one of them. And that was in 1990, but we in Ireland never copped on to such huts, says our Liam. Hours to Protect, brought to you by Tip FM, the IBI, and funded by Commission Naman with the television licence fee. Check out hourstoprotect.ie for more info. A big contributor to our carbon footprint is the transport of food. But one Irish company is looking to reduce that contribution with milk vending machines. Nesty is a company doing just that. And I went to find out more. So uh, I'm Tomás Young and the company is Nesty Limited. So essentially what you are proposing is that people would buy milk from vending machines. And while it might sound a bit out there for us here in Ireland, this has been happening for a long, long time right across Europe. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a massive concept all across Europe uh, with, with milk, with meat, with eggs, with uh, vegetables. Um, and it's really, really uh, getting a lot of attention across Europe and people are selling a lot of products through it and maybe getting four or five times the rate for their produce, for their milk or for their eggs or for the meat than they would through traditional channels. Not only that, but hugely sustainable. Massively sustainable. You're talking food meters. 
not food miles or kilometres, you know. And it also gives local producers the opportunity to sell their produce without maybe feeling like they're going into business, which I think is very daunting for a lot of producers. Correct, and um, it's something that farmers can be a bit daunted about. Um, but in our experience, anyone that's gone with our solutions have found that it's far easier than they maybe might have feared initially. Um, you put your product in, you've got a cash register, you've got a fridge, you've got a payment terminal, all 24-7, and you don't even need to be there. You know, so if they're a little bit socially conscious, they don't have to be standing beside the machine. Yeah. It works away 24-7. It's an employee that never goes home. How long does the milk stay fresh in the vending machine? Most of our customers are changing the milk daily. They want to give that ultimate freshness feel for their customers, so they're changing it, whether it be in the morning or the evening, every day. And is it pasteurised, homogenised? How does it work? Yeah, uh, that's down to each customer individually. Um, we're seeing a lot of people going the post- pasteurised route. Um, they don't have to. They can sell raw milk. It's different criteria with the Department of Ag. Um, it's not homogenised. It's that it's agitated in the drum, so the milk comes out uh, properly mixed and tasting like proper milk used to taste like 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. In order, though, to get a vending machine and maybe have one available in the community, is it a huge expense? I know that's what a lot of people would be asking. Yeah. um, Would it be more of an investment than an expense? It's definitely an investment, okay? Um, And it depends on whether they're putting in a double machine or a single machine, how big a pasteuriser they're putting in. It's hard to put a figure on it, but it's tens of thousands, not hundreds, to put in a system like this. But typical payback periods are anywhere from two to four years. So that's very good in any investment, to have that return on investment. What kind of reaction are you getting? Are, Are people very open to the idea? Yeah, they're, they're actually intrigued with it. Um, and we're actually finding non-farmers also coming to us, maybe community people, maybe people semi-retired, and they're maybe doing a, in partnership with a dairy farmer who maybe is just too busy to go and put the milk in or they've enough going on under dairy farm currently. They're doing it in partnership. So people are, uh, this is their business, and then they're going directly to the dairy farmer and getting their milk. What we're seeing as well, I think, is the slow rise of the co-op again. And we, we've had it in Tipperary with the opening of the cottage in Lockmore, and there's a lot of communities coming together yeah. to, to sell produce locally. Yeah. Do you think this is, is coming in at really the right time when these co-ops are, are, are yeah. on the increase again? Like I think, I think COVID has done a lot for community spirit. Yeah. Um, and I think that people realise that they need each other and we need the local nurse and doctor and we need the local bin man and we also need the local farmer. Um, I think they realise the great produce that's been produced in Ireland which is exported all over the world Um, but often here in Ireland we don't realise what our neighbour has or what our community might have and um, I think it's it's, it's a real opportunity for people to reconnect in the community spirit. Because it's funny you, when we were saying that these vending machines are all across Europe and you think, I know we're biased, but we have the best milk in the world. Why don't we have them here? Yeah, I don't know. And we find that across uh, the vending industry in general that we're a little bit slow to, to, to take on that concept here. Um, I think, again, possibly due to COVID, that there is a bit of a sea change and people are starting to see it. And the more of these go up in communities, the next community is saying, well, if ABC community can do it, then why can't we? And I think it will be exponential, but it's going to take possibly another two or three years for you to see it all across Ireland. Hours to Protect, brought to you by Tip FM, the IBI, and funded by Commission Naman with the television license fee. Check out hours to protect.ie for more info. 
And uh, Joe was on to us to say, uh, plenty of tourists for lovely Holy Cross. I think they should open all parts of the Abbey to tourists, including the Tower. Councillor Anne-Marie, uh, Anne-Marie Ryan was on to say, County Tipperary Tourism Plan uh, discussed uh, the provision of modern-day Bothies as uh, tourist accommodation throughout the county. And uh, one of our listeners saying, John G is a breath of fresh air on the programme, Fran, um, and he's not shy at coming forward. Well, he certainly tells it as it is, that's for sure. That's it from me. Emma produced, Ali looks after our content. Stephen is on the way with the Time Tunnel on the Lunchtime Show, and I'll talk to you tomorrow. Look after yourselves, won't you? Bye-bye. Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie.